0: (laughs) Oh, no, you did not shoot that green shit at me. scheduled
1: program all right welcome back to War Council a hobby centered podcast for wargaming enthusiasts and of course enthusiasts of wargaming miniatures and painting them my name is Edward Winterrose. this is Hunter Poston and we'll be here for the next hour talking about some various things of course you've probably heard some rumor about the future of white metal games, we're not going to get into that this episode. We're going to proceed as though our IQs are normal and that the thing is going to continue. We're going to be here until they tell us to get out. Anyway, on the plate for this episode, we are going to be talking about some new things that we just finished, some with Cthulhu Wars, right?
2: Uh, yes. Is that on this episode?
1: Yeah, it is going to be on this episode. We're going to be talking about it on video as well, but we're going to talk a little bit about... Just basically HP Lovecraft, hmm. bas- in the gaming industry in general, and some of what this project was that we finished. And let's see here. After that, we're going to talk a little bit about holidays in Warhammer 40K. I didn't know that there were any, and being British people, I'm thinking there's they're going to bake Christmas into it in some way or other. Well, I guess there's... they kind of have
2: just holidays in general are very prominent in British culture. You know, yeah. like, there's like the, the bank holidays, which I still don't know what those are, but apparently they're days when the uh, the banks just take off a whole bunch of days. Yeah. And like everything's closed.
1: Certainly the boxing holiday is after Christmas.
2: Mm, that's a thing in Canada, too.
1: Mm-hmm. They got it from the Brits. <laughs> And let's see here. After that, we were going to discuss some of the things that are coming new. Of course, we've got the events of the Warhammer Open Day earlier this month during the weekend after Thanksgiving, where they kind of premiered some of the stuff that they were going to be releasing that we've got out for pre-order now.
2: Oh, yes, yes.
1: They talked about some of the new books. They talked about Right Out of Mephiston. My Head. Mephiston. Thank you, Mephiston. He's already out. The Grot Bomber, some of the Warhammer Chaos Knight books that were coming out along with some of those
2: miniatures. Those just came out uh, last weekend.
1: We're also going to get into a talk about the Tau. This is going to be more Hunter than me talking because he brought this up to me last week about There's a
2: certain stigma against
1: Tau players. Okay, we'll get into that in a little bit. And as far as that goes, there's also a short story that I did that we're not going to do an interview this episode i actually did a bit of audio drama for us this time and of course we're going to have the one minute rant and the service segment later on but if you want to hang around with us we will be back in a moment Alright, thanks for waiting. We're back. We're going to get into a bit of a talk about Call of Cthulhu and HP Lovecraft. The reason being, Hunter and I are going to be in a two-person video this coming week. Talking about a finished project where our painters were doing miniatures of elder gods from the Cthulhu lore, Mm -hmm. and this was for the Cthulhu Wars game Mm -hmm. by Peterson Games.
2: Yes, though this isn't the first time we've made some Cthulhu-themed miniatures.
1: No, no, as a matter of fact, two or three podcasts ago, Shane and I were talking about the Azathoth miniature that Preston did.
2: Did you see the one that Caleb kitbashed for The King in Yellow? I did not. That is an impressive one. I was very... Well, very impressed. I'm sorry. Adjectives escape me at this point.
1: The King in Yellow is actually a story I've not read. Surprisingly, I am quite light on having read his works, even though I've got a complete works that I got as a prize in a costume contest some years ago.
2: Well, here's the thing. The King in Yellow is not not actually an H.P. Lovecraft original. Hashtore was created by another author building off the old H.P. Lovecraft lore because Lovecraft left his saga to the public domain. Anybody can write or use his characters and mythos in their own stories.
1: Wow. Okay, I'm guessing his family, if he had left any behind, wouldn't have been pleased about that.
2: Maybe not, but the thing is is that the King in Yellow stories were apparently considered of such top quality that they were sort of uh, adopted into the mythos.
1: A lot of people who lore. picked up that mythos and ran with it have done much better work than I think he did.
2: Additionally, um, he was best friends with the guy who wrote Conan, and they would have their characters appear in each other's stories.
1: I haven't read all that much HP himself.
2: Same here. I just know what I've picked up from pop culture, though I do have a friend who is quite uh, knowledgeable in Lovecraft and its lore, so I'll see if I, I can remember from there.
1: Usually in gaming chat rooms, when I was doing gaming in IRC, or internet relay chat for the Unwashed, basically somebody would try to start baking in some sort of Elder God or Cthulhu thing every now and again, and half the players are go, ah, oh, this again. Are, are we going to really get into Cthulhu now? Oh, gosh. And I would watch them erupt on it, and I had sort of a negative impression of it to start with because people were just so exasperated with it. Hello,
2: humans. Have you heard about our lord and savior, Cthulhu? Oh.
1: worship his flagellate tentacles, please. When it comes to role-playing, I've known about Call of Cthulhu for a while. Usually that's the game where if you've got a good game master and he's been really leading you along the creepy path, well, the story that I remember somebody telling me of one that they played was they went out for pizza during part of the game. They were like, okay, look, we're getting hungry, we need a break, like you do, we're gonna go out and get some pizza. They came back and found the person who was left minding the house, with the lights out behind the door, with a bat. And going, okay, no, you can't come in. Really? You you did that well, scaring the fellow? Way to go you. (laughs) Wow. I know, right? And then, of course, we get into stuff from after it passed to the people at Fantasy Flight games Mm. where you've got their version of Call of Cthulhu but you've also got their board games which my wife is much more into like Mm. the Arkham Horror you've got Mansions of Madness both of which I feel there's no good deed in those games that goes unpunished
2: well the thing is, is that you can't win you can only survive to the end everyone loses when you play Call of Cthulhu, or live... If you live in H.P. Lovecraft's universe, you're screwed, no matter what.
1: Yeah. I know that I was probably making a mistake going into a Cthulhu game with the idea that there was a victory condition.
2: No, it's all about dying in the most spectacular way possible.
1: And I get that.
2: Though there is one recorded instance of someone winning a Cthulhu game. Actually winning.
1: I actually would expect that if it's going to happen to anybody, that might happen to me. Weird things happen to me in board games. Hmm. Like playing King of Tokyo, I somehow managed to win playing an entirely pacifist game. I did not hurt anyone. I did not kill any other players, but I ended up with the most victory points.
2: So you ended up pulling a Mothra.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. And my friends took pictures. They were so flabbergasted that it had happened.
2: So, so without getting too much, um, you and everyone listening, uh, some some people in the audience might actually have heard of the story. Have you heard of the uh, the Henderson scale of plot derailment?
1: I have heard of the old man Henderson scale of plot derailment.
2: That is, old man Henderson is the man who won way of Cthulhu. A little different, of, different from Call of Cthulhu, but for so, some people may not see the difference. The story is chronicled online in full detail from no less than two different players' perspectives. Mm -hmm. The fellow
1: that made him I think made him as a vengeance character for the one that he... Yes,
2: they had a a, a shitty DM who was incredibly annoying, and both many of the players could attest to this, and through sheer luck and little to no planning, except towards the very end, uh, Henderson managed to take everything that came his way.
1: Yeah, I mean basically he had just killed the player's previous character, and this was a game that... By accident. yeah, but I have the impression that the GM was one that... was one of those guys that measures his success in how many player character sheets he takes from his players.
2: Yes, that's what it seemed like, along S- with some annoying self-inserts. Basically the... I think I've met one of these DMs before, too. It's hmm. uh, a, a sort of a power trip GM, is what I'd say.
1: It's very much a power trip. It's kind of an unacceptable way to be, really.
2: And while he was letting old... He he probably thought it was hilarious that Henderson was sort of like fumbling through his entire game unhindered until he realized what he did at the very end.
1: And Henderson, for our people at home who haven't read the saga of old man Henderson, basically an old crazy guy. An old crazy
2: guy with an unreliable past... Uh, who sounds like Jeff Bridges with a mohawk and a Hawaiian shirt.
1: And ha- there was an elder outbreak of dark creatures and old ones and elder gods breaking out in his community. Yes. All he cared about was someone stole his lawn gnomes.
2: Which he ended up donating. Like, here's the, here's, that's, the, that's the thing is that... Okay, okay, so I recommend reading the whole story. I'm not going to spoil everything, but Please, yes. Yeah. Old Man Henderson and his quest for his lawn gnomes.
1: And honestly, you can almost imagine, if he didn't sound like, you can imagine him sounding a bit like Qui-Gon Jinn. It's like, if you bring my lawn gnomes back now, nothing will happen to you.
2: <laughs> I always, always was under the impression he's like, Jeff Bridges, like, like where's my lawn gnomes? <laughs> it's like the ugliest damn boodle I've ever seen.
1: But getting back to Cthulhu again, yeah, I've just got this n- kind of negative impression of Cthulhu games in general because of this general oppressive thing. I've got to come to the realization that the impressive thing is why you're playing, yes. not something to beat.
2: <laughs> so from what I've been able to pick up about you, Edward, is that... You like to play games where you can be a paragon or like a a sort of, you want to be in a setting where there's sort of like a a hope or maybe an ideal. I want
1: something with a victory condition where things end up better than they were. I don't need to be a paragon. If anything, I tend to play iconoclasts. Mm. But, yeah, I do look for a bit of hope in my games.
2: And Lovecraft's stories have established a setting where there is no hope. Yeah. It's a very bleak, depressing, and horrifying... We are a
1: very tiny piece of amoeboid life in a vast mm. and unknowable universe.
2: Full of uncaring or malicious gods.
1: Essentially about as caring of us as we are for ants. Ant? Boot. Yeah. That's the old Babylon 5 thing. Suppose I pick up this ant and then I put him back. The ant might say to another ant, what was that? (laughs) Good old Jakar, right? But, I mean, yeah, I would like to see a little bit more hopeful. Maybe that's why Cthulhu games are not for me. But I can appreciate the imagination going into them. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly appreciate some of the creature designs that have come out of it since.
2: Yes, yeah, just the like how the Cthulhu monsters often have some ties to the ocean because there's some freaking terrifying things down there. Like they're native to this world, but they look so alien and disturbing. Like have you seen
1: Let's say yes, I have seen it.
2: <laughs> like like a uh, a bobbit worm.
1: Bobbit worm. No, I don't know bobbit worm by name immediately. I will say that I've seen plenty of my video game streamers playing this fad of undersea games that happened in the last few years. And I would say the biggest example of that would be Subnautica. Yeah. A lot of my streamers, when they're playing this, they're putting streamers into this game who have who like the way they react when they see something that scares them. So you've got people like Markiplier and people like Jacksepticeye, and they're playing and they meet something that they call a Reaper Leviathan in that game. Usually they're screaming at the top of their lungs, Ah! I hate the ocean! I hate the ocean! I want. I don't want any! I don't want any! Yeah, any kind of messed up life, yeah, it's probably at the bottom of the ocean here. Oh, yeah, okay, that's. he's showing me a picture of this.
2: The Bobbit Worm.
1: If there's any players of No Man's Sky out there, there is a monster at the bottom of the wa- bodies of water in that game, except that's kind of like a great big worm about the size round of a that looks like a tree trunk, really. Except in No Man's Sky, they have eyes on the end of them. Here in the Bobbit Worm's case, instead of a great big eye, there's just a great big maw of teeth. Yeah looks almost like a thresher maw in mass effect really if you want to re- if anybody remembers
2: those but the idea of like all these like tentacled monsters and just sort of like these bizarre anatomies
1: the tentacles are really kind of forefront to a lot of people yeah
2: they are but i feel like it, it people focus on the tentacles and don't don't understand the idea is that it's supposed to be like this thing without form thing with no no known silhouette it's like this Something you cannot possibly perceive. We were talking earlier about this a little bit, and you were referring to, I I believe it was Carl Sagan, who said if a a two-dimensional object trying to comprehend a three-dimensional creature.
1: Yeah, it was a bit that they used for Cosmos, where he's kind of showing dimensions and what they were and how they kind of worked. His example was of a two-dimensional creature living only in width and breadth. And if a three-dimensional object were to fall through a two-dimensional form, like, say, an apple fell through a flat plane, its only perception of that apple might be a cross-section of the apple from bottom to top as it fell through that two-dimensional plane. And, of course, the two-dimensional being would turn to his flatland pals, and just like the ant a little bit earlier with we might say, What was that? Am I going insane? And they're probably going to look at him and go, Yes, Mr. Flat, I'm afraid you are. Here, let us take you to Flatland Asylum where you can't get out of this two-dimensional square on a piece of paper.
2: And like that, the, the, much of the horror of the Cthulhu Mythos comes from the fact that these things are unknowable and are without any... Compreh- you, their form is ungraspable.
1: Honestly, the thing where it comes to you can't actually see these things properly without going insane that's one of the biggest drawbacks to people trying to make adaptations of these on film or in media. I think there's a commonly agreed to idea of what some of these things look like because there's so many role-playing games that need game pieces like the ones we just finished. Mm. But to a large degree, how do you, how do you represent that on film when you've got something that is literally just a, Somewhat common vision of what we can agree upon. This thing looks like this is all we are equipped as a race to be able to perceive. Right,
2: and once you are become more familiar with it, it becomes casualified. A baby Cthulhu, plush Cthulhu. We've anybody, got one in our house. <laughs> yeah, it's like they become these things that were once so horrifying to behold have become commonplace.
1: Defanged.
2: Yeah, exactly. We we, we cute, cutesify them and stuff like that.
1: There was one film I quite appreciated, and it happened I believe in the late 1980s it was actually produced by Gale Ann Hurd, called Cast a Deadly Spell hmm. it was done for HBO it didn't have very many people you'd recognize in it now, though we've got a late 80s Julianne Moore as the ingenue we've also got Clancy Brown in there as one of the pad guys I as a gangster, guy. the Kurgan himself
2: yep also, Mr. Krabs. But, but for it, those younger audiences,
1: it was a Los Angeles private eye noir story, except this Los Angeles was a Los Angeles where sorcery and magic were real. Hmm. And the planets were just about to line up a very certain way. So, in this very Maltese falconish kind of plot, you've got this private eye who's been hired by David Warner. To find a book that was stolen for him that he needs before this certain night comes along, was and we the... all know which book this is probably is.
2: The King in Yellow or the Necronomicon? Oh,
1: it's the Necronomicon. Okay. And I don't want to spoil too much, but you do get a vision of what Great Cthulhu is like in that film. Mm. And it's not bad. It could be better. It's certainly done with practical effects, considering it was the late 1980s. Mm. It's a very little-known Cthulhu film, but I can't recommend it enough.
2: I'll have to check it out. What was it called again?
1: Cast a Deadly Spell.
2: Cast a Deadly Spell. It
1: was made for HBO back in the day when making movies for your movie network was still something of a novel idea. Mm. But if it gives you... it was. A, it's also kind of funny. It's got that defanged tongue-in-cheek going on. Mm. Like when our private eye goes to a police precinct, you see a whole bunch of uh, werewolves in the holding cage and ones being grilled, being given the first degree. It's like, yeah, howl all you want, pal. None of your friends can hear you over here. Yeah, go let him sit in the cage with his pants. Maybe he'll remember what he needs to tell us. Kind of takes him out and the pr- police chief goes over by the private eye and lights up a cigarette God I hate full moons
2: <laughs> So it's, it takes the, the film noir And sort of brings it into this uh, Horror setting
1: It does and there are some genuinely Terrifying moments But it's also got that tongue in cheek That lets you digest it It's kind of got that games Workshop feel to it really okay. That black humorous or They know where to inject the comedy Where it's needed so you're not overwhelmed By it I see yeah on the other hand, I think we're probably going to get an example of the overwhelming kind of horror sometime later in 2020 when The Color Out of Space comes out.
2: Yes. I'm I'm looking forward to that one. I saw a adaptation of The Color Out of Space not too long ago with a young uh, Will Wheaton of all people playing a, uh, a kid. Well, he was a kid back then, but he was like 14 or 15 and like really
1: wiry. See, it's going to be really interesting. I follow him on Tumblr, Mm. so it'll be interesting when the Nicolas Cage movie comes out this coming year to hear what Will's got to say about it.
2: Hmm. I wonder if he'll remember it. It was quite a long time ago.
1: Will's a geek that remembers everything.
2: (laughs) Mm. I believe the movie was called The Curse.
1: Yes, okay, I do remember that name and I do remember a movie poster for it
2: but that is pretty much a direct adaptation New England farm instead of like a New England small town. Mm -hmm. It's just strictly set in like the farmland and sort of... Well, it
1: does happen on a farm.
2: Okay, okay, so there you go.
1: I have not read this story, however, and this is kind of the 21st Internet Geeks version of Cliff Notes, there is a series on YouTube called Overly Sarcastic Productions.
2: I've seen them recommended before, though it was not sold on the title, and so I've probably avoided them for that alone. I tend to make quick judgments about recommendations.
1: They're very well-educated people. One does literary commentary and commentary on mythology. Mm. The other one does commentary on world history. And yeah, you can see where their master's degrees are when they start talking, but they're also quite funny, and they're really good artists as well. And one of Red's reviews, or literary reviews, was on The Color Out of Space, where she goes through the entire story and tells you how it happened in this truncated, funny way that they tell. So I've got a general idea what's going to happen when I watch the movie, so if you want to just go there and get the highlights, or if you're not a fan of Nicolas Cage, or if you're not looking forward to the idea of someone messing up a Cthulhu story again for film... Because there have been other attempts than the ones that we have just discussed, because they were going to do The Mountains of Madness ah. as a movie some years ago, and Cruz was attached to play the main role. I want to say Guillermo del Toro was going to be the director for the film. And honestly, I feel that we were cheated. I don't tend to go see Tom Cruise movies for reasons of my own. But this one I might have made an exception for because I wanted to see Del Toro doing Lovecraft's work.
2: Del Toro's at home when he's doing horror or just disturbing things anyway, like Pan's Labyrinth. Even Hellboy, which is like the more lighthearted of one of his films.
1: I quite appreciated his Hellboy movies. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I could probably do with seeing more of his work than I have.
2: Mm -hmm. I like it when he like sort of dips into like mythology and folk stories and Mm -hmm. just kind of captures the unsettling parts of it.
1: And that's probably another draw of... Oh, yeah, Hunter's doing the eyes on the hands thing here.
2: The uh, the, the thing from Pan's Labyrinth (laughs) in in the dining hall.
1: But that's kind of another thing about the Cthulhu works that I think really kind of relates here as far as that goes. You've got mythology. It's all been mythologized. This is a whole kind of interrelated cult of stories where you've got essentially people relating or retelling their experiences of old legends waking up and reaching out and getting you. And it's all done from the point of view of a modern person in the early 19th century, running afoul of all this old mythology and lore that's really better forgotten or not known.
2: I just remembered something about the Cthulhu mythos. So while it's assumed that all the the gods are either malicious or uncaring... There is an instance of at least I don't think there's a difference between the great old ones and like the like other ancient deities. Mm-hmm. Like Cthulhu is a great old one, I believe, but he's actually fairly young by comparison, and he's just like chaotic neutral. Like he's Godzilla. He doesn't doesn't really care one way or another. He's not here to destroy everything. He looks out for his own interests. Yeah, which is why you have some foolhardy people trying to cock curry his favor.
1: I'm thinking about that comic I've been seeing recently. It's a four-panel thing where Cthulhu rises up from the, the ocean and looks down. There's a little kitten on a rock going, meow, 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 meow at him. Okay. Cthulhu reaches down, and gives him a fish, and then goes off to destroy the world while the cat eats his fish.
2: <laughs> I haven't seen that one. <laughs> Funny you should bring up a cat, though, because uh, the Egyptian goddess Bastet is considered in the path pantheon of the Cthulhu mythos, and is actually somewhat benevolent towards humans, at least ones that that treat cats properly. Because cats can actually see, in in the Cthulhu mythos, cats can see the true forms of like the the spirits and the the things from beyond.
1: I was not aware of that. So I just knew there was this generally Egyptian-sounding name of one of these god forms, Nyarlathotep.
2: Yeah, Nyarlathotep, or however, however you pronounce it. I don't know which one's the real one, but that is in fact like a ancient proto-egyptian god that's basically the chaotic evil backstabbing god that's how much i can remember basically it it takes it deceives it takes on forms of other things and is basically playing chess and sort of orchestrating all these chaotic events. Also, all of H.P. Lovecraft's original works are public domain. You can probably find them for free online, legally.
1: Absolutely. We
2: hope that this uh, conversation possibly generates some interest in those works, because there is a wealth of literature by this author. That
1: said... That said, there is something of a controversial nature to H.P. Lovecraft in the current day.
2: He was... uh, quite racist even in his own day towards ethnic groups
1: it has been commented on to some degree uh, again in overly sarcastic productions but many more places than that it's not just the Mm -hmm. word of internet humorists who have recognized the inherent racism in a lot of his concepts
2: so if you're before going in to read the book please do note that um there some of this may be
1: present Go in with your eyes open and a kind of expect it. I mean, just yeah. go in with maybe the attitude you might have toward the old uncle who shows up for Thanksgiving every now yeah. and again. Don't
2: you don't have to excuse him by no by any means, but do understand that is going to be that may appear within his stories as it was a dare I say defining feature of his uh, opinions.
1: Yes, and that's putting it lightly. But
2: yeah, we're not even going to talk about what he named his cat. Oh we're God, gonna, we're going to let you look that one up yourself.
1: Uh, or don't uh, honestly you'll you can go your whole life without knowing this in any case that's going to do it for this segment right now we will be back in a moment thanks All right, welcome back, so we got into this a little bit in the intro, but we wanted to get back to the idea of are there holidays in 40K, because I was looking to maybe do a blog post about it, or maybe include something about holidays in the Christmas show here, but I'm thinking to myself, in a grimdark setting like this, do they have things like Christmas or, well, I'm not going to say Thanksgiving, because it's basically British people making the game, they don't have Thanksgiving.
2: I think they have something like it, not quite the same as ours, though.
1: Not certainly, not, I would think. But they're very big on their holidays in England. They always have. I mean, it's not just a new country here. They've got holidays and things that they want to make sacred that go back centuries and centuries, where we only mm-hmm. go back two hundred years or so.
2: You got like bonfire night.
1: Yeah. Saint Swithin's Day, which, of course, I have no idea what that is. It's some sort of religious-based holiday mm-hmm. that
2: have... bank holidays.
1: But of course, we do actually have some holidays in 40K. If I'm, if I understand you right,
2: yes. The uh, they're kind of nebulous, but the most the one that's nailed down is Sanguinala for the Imperial citizens.
1: Does this have anything to do with Sanguinius?
2: Uh, yes, it does. It has. It's basically a day of remembrance for the Primarch that, that basically died while protecting the Emperor from Horus.
1: Threw himself against Horus's mace while the Emperor was coming in.
2: I think it may have been a lightning claw, but yes.
1: I just did this post on the Blood Angels, and we can talk about that a little bit when we get into what's new. But I did a lot of research on Sanguinius just this last week, looking at the picture of fallen Sanguinius with his side torn, very much in the place where Jesus had his side pierced.
2: Yes. it's. I'm this, sure that was intentional. Oh, absolutely. It is very... If you've ever seen that original piece of artwork where, like, with Horace the Emperor and Sanguinius, mm-hmm. it's very reminiscent of those Renaissance paintings of these, like, laments and things like that from... Uh, biblical stories
1: And it's not like where you see at the end of a movie Any similarity to any person's living or dead Is purely coincidental No, with Games Workshop it's entirely intentional
2: They, they know their references They are very culturally uh, robust in their storytelling Possibly uh, maybe a little I won't say plagiaristic But they certainly lift They lift as much At least as much as George Lucas did For his original Star Wars script
1: yeah, yeah. I suppose he did. If you're gonna, the old saying is, if you're going to steal, you steal from the best.
2: There's nothing new under the sun.
1: But are there any ways that are set out that they talk about where they celebrate Sanguinor? Uh, what is the, Sanguinola? Uh, Sanguinala. How do, do they observe it in any specific ways, or is it just a basic day where you go, "Oh, poor old Sanguinius is dead." And that's basically it. It's something
2: like that. It's like a it's. Yeah, maybe it's like Easter without the hopeful uh, thing at the end. Oh, gosh, <laughs> just sort of like a a remembrance of the uh, the fallen angel as it was. I guess the the hope is that um, the emperor lived and is able to hold back chaos,
1: such as he did.
2: <laughs> such as, yeah, and I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's a remembrance, sort of like a melancholy, but mi- mixed with a uh, a fervor to be like Sanguinius and uh, fight for the emperor.
1: Or at least as they perceived Sanguinius was without knowing his darker secrets. Mm -hmm. Though he was quite
2: loyal, Sanguinius is... They didn't have to doctor much about him other than his... uh, What secrets are you talking about? Did he also suffer from the Red Thirst?
1: He did, actually. When I was doing my research, they found out about the Red Thirst, or rather Horus found out about the Red Thirst, when he found Sanguinius feeding on one of his own soldiers that he had killed. And basically, he's kind of explaining what's going on, and Horace is like, hey, no, nobody hears about it but me. This is between us, right? Except Horace is going, ah, he's got this red thirst, and by extension, all of his soldiers also have this red thirst, that's what I'm going to use to tempt some of his legions away for him for my heresy that I have planned.
2: Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. Sanguinius and Horus were tight. They were... Brothers.
1: brothers! They
2: were they were probably the closest two Primarchs ever got. They were... Literal they were brothers. At, at, yes. At, but they were like the 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 inseparable. Like you have some people who got along with each other that, like Jagadi and uh, Magnus who were... Jagadi was like very distraught at the fact of hearing Magnus had Turn traitor. He supported him even during the uh, Council of Nicaea, or was it not? Which is a, another another religious reference?
1: Oh gosh, I, w- I was looking through my research this last week, going, what really the Council of Nicaea? They they referenced the Council of Nicaea. That's interesting, mm-hmm. and if. You're not familiar with that. It was a great, big religious conference about the 3rd century.
2: It's also where St. Nick punched someone in the face.
1: Where St. Nicholas punched someone in the face.
2: Actual historical event, everybody.
1: And when the birthday of Jesus Christ was officially moved from sometime in March to December 25th to supplant Saturnalia.
2: Yes, which brings us back to Sanguinala. Right. (laughs) Which is clearly the inspiration for the title. Now, are there any... Everything's connected. Exactly so. 40K permeates culture.
1: Now, are there any other holidays that are of note? I mean, I know we've got the Da Red Gobbo, who are, does things for the revolution.
2: Yeah, nothing quite set in stone. There have been a few jokes, I don't know, like a few joke holidays that I don't know who starred them. Like, if you follow the, uh, if the emperor has a text-to-speech device series, there was a Slaneshmus special uh, oh. A year or two ago. Okay. And I think that was actually referenced this year or past year by Games Workshop.
1: They seem very much unafraid to pick up something that's good if somebody, mm-hmm. if part of the fan base is creating something of note or worthy.
2: For instance, the, um, oh, we're going to tie it back to uh, the Blood Angels here too. Everything's connected. Uh, well, the,
1: we do have some major releases this month.
2: Yes, yes, but not only that, there's the TV series. That's coming out in the near future. The Inquisitorial one. Not just that, but the uh, Blood Angels animated series.
1: Ah, this we're going to get into when we're talking about what's new and the stuff that came out on Warhammer Day.
2: Yes, but let me just say, the guy who was making a fan-created series of the audiobook... Animated, He animated this in uh, Source Filmmaker and used the audio from the audiobook uh, to as the source material. He animated Hell's Reach, uh, which is about the Black Templars. And Games Workshop saw this and decided to hire the guy for a Blood Angels TV series.
1: See, that's always the dream, right? You do fan work, and then the people who are the custodians of the actual work go... You know, we like the cut of your jib. Come with us. If only more corporations could uh, pick up on this. How much more money do you need to make this reality? Mm -hmm. Do you need a staff? Oh, yes, please. (laughs) But then again, I'm guessing the rest of the holidays, given that it's 40,000 years of war, are probably going to be remembrances of military events.
2: Additionally, it spans across galaxies, so different worlds will have different days or different holidays for them to observe.
1: I thought this only took place in the Milky Way galaxy.
2: The Milky Way galaxy is freaking huge. Uh, if you read some of the books, especially the ones that take place on, like, no-name worlds, stuff like yeah. that, like the Caiaphas Kane books, they kind of go into, like, the individual cultures or uh, setups for the different planetary governments, which have their own observances and stuff like that. Usually an offhand remark or stuff like that. They're very well detailed. I can't recommend the Caiaphas Cain books well enough. They're sort of a fun military story mixed with a little bit of, I want to say James Bond, in terms of Caiaphas Cain's somewhat philandering character. Yeah, so in, in Cain's case, he's actually, when it comes to serving the Imperium, he's fairly incorruptible, except for his own interests. they will always try to find a way to try and get himself out of the picture. It never works, though. But he, he's uh, he's quite popular with the ladies, and he's never one to turn never one to turn down some female company. And they never turn him down, either.
1: Okay, this actually does sound interesting to me. This is no comment on my character, by the way, but I do like a chaotic neutral or at least a chaotic good kind of character. It's an interesting
2: duality because he's 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 a rogue. He is an absolute sort of like Han Solo kind of character who wants to look out for his own interests, but realizes he's a high-ranking officer who has certain expectations. But he doesn't want to get caught in the line of fire. He doesn't want to deal with all this bullshit. So he tries to set himself up on a no-name backwater planet where he's going to be attached to an artillery division where nobody, he's not going to see any action. He can just live out his life in peace, just drinking booze and...
1: I think I remember my pal Spot telling me about these when he recommended the Kane books to me once.
2: So this is the first story. Uh, turns out the planet's overrun by Tyranids. He accidentally kills, in, in his brave escape, he accidentally kills the Hive Tyrant that's controlling them and is labeled a hero. From there, his renown goes spreads across the Imperium, and he gets assigned more and more dangerous missions. I highly recommend the book series. They're a good read. They're not super involved. They are a bit old lore, at least the first few books are, so their lore on the Necrons is a bit... Sketchy? ...outdated is what I want to say. This is back when they had Pariahs, which are an amazing, amazing unit that kind of got thrown out.
1: Pariahs, you mentioned in your Crackpot Theories last week. Yes, I did. I am not insulting him, by the way. The segment was called Crackpot Theories, and he suggested the title.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) I I volunteered that because that's what they are at this point. I don't claim to be a professor or a knowledgeable interview. I don't claim to know what the future will hold.
1: Though one of those theories seems to be panning out. Which one? Well, let's actually end this segment here, Mm -hmm. because there's not really much more to go into holiday-wise, but we're going to come back with what's new in a moment where we can discuss some of this stuff that came out on Warhammer Day. Alrighty. Here's the thing. About when What's New
0: Pussycat plays. What's New Pussycat?
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's New Pussycat? Whoa. All right, thanks for waiting. We're going to get into what's new now. And Warhammer kind of threw me a curve. I was not expecting this, though I imagine a lot of diehard Warhammer fans were. When we left for Thanksgiving, the big long weekend we had here down in North Carolina Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I wasn't expecting anything really big to drop, and then I come back and find out that over in England they'd had Warhammer Day 2019.
2: Because they don't celebrate Thanksgiving!
1: Right! And then they dropped several, several new things on us. They gave us new books, they gave us release dates for Mephiston, they hit us with Grot Bombers, they hit us with all manner of things, including, as Hunter was mentioning a little bit earlier, at the very end of the show, they hit us with two trailers for some animated subjects that are probably going to get a series treatment, if what they're hinting was correct.
2: Yes, so, like I was mentioning earlier, there is a Blood Angel series. Let me see if I can find the name here real quick.
1: And while he's looking, we actually, I had a look at some of these on the Warhammer community page. They still have that headline up there if you want to go and look at it, as well as the one-minute trailer where you got footage from both. One was very much your 3D animated kind of subject, but it wasn't the sort of 3D animation that you get in kids' features. It was actually quite polished.
2: Yes, that was Angels of Death.
1: The other one was very much more kid-like in character design. It was almost anime in its style, but it looked a little bit more Western than I think anime could be credited with.
2: So those, there was actually more than one show shown there. There was actually about three or four. Uh-huh. Um, there was one that had a bit more of a, a classic, well not classic, but like a I want to say a um, Avatar: The Last Airbender sort of art style.
1: That's a lot more like what I was seeing.
2: But there was also two others that were based off of the uh, kids' comics that came out, uh, the, the Warhammer Adventure series. Uh, mildly controversial for some people who are steeped in the lore, simply because they um, they throw sort of children from these universes from both the mortal realms and the 40k universe into conflict against or conflict or sort of in situations where they are around like these, these dangerous enemies. And the first one they had for the forty k ones was these uh, Necrons, I believe, which yeah, it doesn't seem like you'd want to have some like teenagers kids. around. No, but there's another thing that was a point of contention. I'm not here to I'm not here to rag on everything, but one compelling case one person made was one of the kids is a tech priest in training, or is at least tra- working his way up to an adept, mm-hmm. who makes his own contraptions, which is a Big no no for for Adeptus Mechanicus characters, especially ones from Mars, which
1: One does not deviate from the holy um, Messiah's schematics. Standard template
2: yes, STC files. So inventing is considered very um frowned upon and is a tantamount or at least well, approaching uh
1: heretic. It's not unknown. For animated series to put these teenage types in these kind of dangerous situations in this kind of genre, what I'm thinking of, or what it reminds me of, is a series that was never picked up from its initial 10 or 15 episode run that was that was produced and finished and submitted, but it never got picked up. They did an animated series based on Battletech. Back oh. in the day. And literally, in one of the podcasts before, I used a sample out of their opening credits for that opening montage. But it's kids in the inner sphere from different houses having to get together to defend this one planet that's getting raised by, I forget which, maybe House Curita, but I'm not sure. I know that our main character, I believe, was a Davian, but I was very much surprised to see that that was happening. I downloaded the series to see what it was like, because it's a defunct series. Nobody's selling that. Yeah. And I was surprised to find that it had something of a compelling plot. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's 1990s animation made for Saturday morning, so it's not going to be like War and Peace or Warner Brothers or anything. I don't know.
2: The 90s had some really cool stuff. It did, do you ever see Cadillacs and Dinosaurs?
1: That was based on a comic book.
2: Yes, the Xenozoic uh, era.
1: Xenozoic tales. tales.
2: But the animation for that show was amazing. Anyway, as you're saying about well, Battletech.
1: Well, the Battletech show was more on the echelon of, say, the Fox X-Men show kind of animation. Uh, my precious ring! Yeah. Ah!
2: Sorry, everyone's seen that. But they made one big mistake. They attacked my
1: home planet. It was just incredibly incredibly cheesy.
2: Yeah, I've got better things to do than die tonight.
1: Yeah, stuff like that. But they really did kind of get into that melodrama, and I'm wondering if 20 or 25 years of progress animation-wise for that kind of genre is going to make what we see for these Warhammer shows a little bit better. More to the point... That actually, okay, I've got kind of my own crackpot theory here. Okay, go ahead. Because we've got this deal that I might have mentioned in one of our newsletters in the last month or so, where I was doing a bit of research to see what kind of new things were happening, and I saw that Games Workshop had come to an agreement with Marvel Comics.
2: Yes. And they
1: will be doing a Marvel comic of Warhammer 40k type stories. Or maybe more than one issue. Right now, the people over at Marvel are kind of keeping mum about this because it's still in development. It's gonna, we're going to hear more about that in the coming year. Probably about August when they start talking about the comic books and the Inquisitor series that they're kind of got in development as well. But if Marvel is doing a comic book for the people at Games Workshop, well, Marvel is a subsidiary of Disney who have their own animation division now. yes and do Marvel Comics-type cartoons for their networks as well. It's not beyond the pale the idea that Disney might get tapped to develop a Warhammer 40K cartoon or animated subject based on what we were seeing here on Warhammer Day. They might say, we like your concept so much. Here, here are our friends at Disney. Go nuts. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that might be great. The question, of course, becomes would they develop something like that at Disney?
2: Uh, If there's money involved, I would say yes.
1: Disney's a a touchy subject because they have this history of wanting to do science fiction with darker themes, but they've still got this reputation as a company that does family entertainment. See, John
2: Carter of Mars.
1: John Carter of Mars, yeah. The one that I usually hold up as an example is the Black Hole.
2: I was going to bring that up, but I haven't seen that one. I
1: want to see it. The Black Hole, Tron, there was a whole area of productions coming out of Disney in the early 80s and late 70s where they wanted to get in on this new science fiction craze that Star Wars ushered in. They wanted to be big boy science fiction producers, But they couldn't get past their family-friendly thing, so they released the black hole, which was this. It was rated PG, which was kind of a departure for them. They they don't get out of the rated G. Yeah, and back
2: then they didn't have PG thirteen, so PG was one step removed from R. Yeah,
1: exactly right. A lot of parents because they actually released toys and model kits and kids' activity books and bookstores where you could pop out the little perforated patterns of the spaceships.
2: Yeah,
1: you could do all of that. And they figured, okay, this is a space movie for kids. And then they took their kids to see this movie and it was quite something else. Disney's always had this dichotomy going on. We want to make grown-up movies and features and shows, but we also want to maintain our kid-friendly, very profitable business. So you wonder how that's going to mesh with the idea that they might do a Warhammer animated series. I would like to see that kind of quality brought to a production but I don't know if it's going to happen. That's my crackpot theory.
2: Allow me to tack on another theory to this crackpot theory. Please do. Perhaps uh, this uh, Mandalorian TV show, which is quite popular, is a t- can be a considered a testing ground for something, uh, for future uh, older audience, yeah, more mature audience rate considered shows. I'm
1: glad you brought that up because I wasn't even considering that.
2: You have the the Mandalorian who has, well, it's not bloody violent, but it is it is quite possibly the most violent we've seen Star Wars in a long time. There
1: is blood in the show.
2: There is, but like with like the disintegrator rifle sorry, spoilers, uh you see people evaporating in puffs of smoke. Yeah. Or like the husks of uh armored soldiers sort of falling onto the ground.
1: You remember in The Empire Strikes Back from my Star Wars fans here, you've got Vader turning over to Boba Fett going, no disintegrations. Yep. And you've only seen people get hit by bolts of light and fall over in the movies. You wonder, okay, what disintegrations are we talking about? These are the disintegrations we're talking about in the Mandalorian. Someone yep. getting shot and they just go up in a puff of sparks, n- no
2: body to be found. Just yeah, literally, just like turning and getting a uh, Thanos.
1: So yeah, they are actually kind of test marketing older people features. And yeah, they've got baby Yoda and we've got some cute- cuteness for kids and there's some very sappy moments occasionally. But it's not a kid show by any means. No, there
2: are there are actual moments of danger. There's very little... It's not holding back. It's just not bloody. Which, to be honest, I feel like is good. We don't need to see a whole bunch of... Not everything has to be a splatterfest. This is
1: part and parcel of Dave Filoni's... Legacy. This is the pe- person who went and hung out with George Lucas, and as a result, gave us the Clone Wars and the Star Wars Rebels series. Mm-hmm. He's. This is actually his first live-action production. He's doing this in conjunction with John Favreau, who you will remember, did the Iron Man movies and played Happy Hogan for the MCU movies.
2: Mm-hmm. So, with that in mind, uh, with the Disney platform, especially Disney Plus, their streaming service. Which is like the paid paid streaming service. Uh, we could ease. I can easily imagine a Warhammer TV show being featured on this service, so it's not on like primetime TV or anything like that.
1: I'll go you one further. It won't be on Disney Plus, but it'll be on Hulu, yeah. which they also own. Yeah. But moving on from that, we had more than just the animated features. Yes. We had the two books that came out. Not just the Blood of Baal and the.
2: Psychic Awakening.
1: The Psychic Awakening, Blood of Baal, and the Mephiston miniature. Mm-hmm. We also got release dates for some other books as well. Can you tell me about those, because I don't have their names handy.
2: I don't have their names either. Which books were you referring to?
1: Well, there was the one for Kill Team, was it?
2: Oh yes, these have already been released. Uh, actually, uh, by the time this goes up, uh, both of these will be released. So we have the Kill Team Annual, which came out last week, uh, as of this recording. Mm-hmm. And we have the War Cry, which is set to release uh, tomorrow on Saturday, which is the, I think it's the Warcry Tome of Champions. Basically, yes. it's not so much a lore book as it is a compendium of information. It's basically all the rules are at as rules updates and stuff you can expect for the miniatures uh, for this year.
1: And we had talked about living game universes and living game settings where mm. things just seem to progress on and on from its original inception back in the day, and of course, Warhammer's been doing this for years and years, since the early 90s.
2: Not quite. It was always released in editions. It was always like a... But the 8th edition seems to be uh, promising a a more living format, as opposed to, this is the next edition, <laughs> what? These are basically compiled information, rules... Uh,
1: All the tweaks and story bits we need to yeah, continue playing scenarios. in an evolving setting.
2: Yes, not story, though. They're not story bits. They're strictly crunch. Okay. We, in the... Uh, the folks in the uh, the Wargaming, like to refer to uh, things as fluff or crunch.
1: See, I've heard you bandy these terms about, but I've never actually had the nerve to go, okay, what's fluff and crunch? I'm dumb. <laughs>
2: So so um, you're familiar with like a fluffy story, right? Yeah, so it fluff is essentially the story, the background. What you see on the pages, what uh, defines it in word and in, in universe, that is the fluff. The crunch is how they're represented on the tabletop. So um, I'm gonna
1: f- dis white wolf games here for a moment, but my to use it in a sentence, White Wolf Games would be heavy on puff in the form of Purple Pros, but very light on crunch.
2: Absolutely. Fluff, okay. not puff. The difference between cotton candy and a Butterfinger bar, I guess.
1: And by the way, that bit of shade thrown at White Wolf Games was entirely intentional.
2: Oh, yeah, no. White Wolf is, um... I've
1: said it in a blog post that they make great games. If they come up with any rules to go with their games, let me know.
2: Yep, there's there's... There is so much edge. like yeah. it may, it's, it's like they expect <laughs> nobody to, um, I don't know, it's like they expect people to take them seriously.
1: Oh, we're full of shade.
2: Yes, yes we are. <laughs> I'm playing a comedian. I am playing a vampire comedian in a current White Wolf game.
1: Well, Malkavians are the only way to go.
2: <laughs> oh, I went with a Torador.
1: That and- said, given the opportunity to play a White Wolf game and given the choice, I would probably pick Mage. Back to the original point of stuff released on Warhammer Day no, no, and back to, the back
2: books. To, so, so I also wanted to actually get, go back to Fluff and Crunch. I want to give another example. Okay. In one example, I seem to remember a, um, in older older Warhammer books, there was, I want to say, a little less regulation. Official publications write this off as, all myths are true from a certain <laughs> perspective, which works out great in their favor. So the story of Marnius Calgar lifting up a Necron pylon and chucking it—oh dear, <laughs> yeah—is uh, questionable. At, in, in, even in the most favored favored lights, favored of lights.
1: Suffice to say, it happened in that in some form or other that might have devolved to that description. We're not going to try and really make light of it or confirm it. Exactly. We'll, we'll say conf- that it happened and leave it at that.
2: We'll neither confirm nor deny its existence. So, um, so obviously, that was in Fluff. On In Crunch, Marnius Calgar cannot do that. No. He's good at punching things, but there, at no point will you see him uh, able to displace a model.
1: Right. We're not talking Spider-Man here. Yeah. And, by the way, that's actually something of a comic, too.
2: No, yeah, That's he's always been like that. A lot of people don't seem to... He's he's tangled with the Hulk multiple times and won.
1: So the thing I'm seeing was a bit of a shit post on Tumblr where people do these little fan funny moments where Steve is yelling, why do you have this kid on the field? He's going to get hurt. And Peter, who can lift canonically 30 tons, picks up the Hulk and goes, fastball special, throws him. And he goes, oh, never mind. (laughs) So yeah, this Kalgar, you said?
2: Yes, Marnius Kalgar, Chapter Master of the Ultramarines.
1: So, no, he may not be able to lift 30 tons like, say, Peter Parker can.
2: Unless he's on the low gravity world.
1: But we're really not going to assail the the fluff too much.
2: No, no. There's a segregation of gameplay mechanics and story.
1: Okay. I think I'm probably more interested in the story, to be honest. Mm. That said, moving on to some of the other things that came out, we also got bombers. Grot bombers. Yes. And these were adorable, I will say, because we've got these bombers that kind of look like they've got teeth, like any orc design's gonna have. They've got great big bombs. Piloted. Piloted by Grots. Yes. Piloted by Grots that want to be pilots. And they will be for a moment. (laughs) Until they hit the ground.
2: Yeah, have you ever seen the ending of uh, Doctor Strangelove? Slim Pickens riding the bomb down. That's Slim, pretty much
1: exactly right. If you've ever seen the wrong trousers,
2: yes, Gromit's airplane. That's exactly Gromit's
1: airplane looks very much like these grot bombs.
2: That's exactly what I thought too. I'm glad you brought up Wallace and Gromit. Hey, uh,
1: Wallace and Gromit are awesome, and of course, the, the people at Games Workshop will have seen them at some point.
2: Of course. So these models are actually for Aeronautica Imperialis. Mm-hmm. Technically, there was a Grot Bomber for 40k from Forge World years ago. I don't know if it's still in production. I don't think it is. But the, the Grot Bombers have been a part of the fluff for a good while, but we haven't seen a model of it in a decent while either.
1: I want to say my pal Spot has one. I think I've seen it on his painting table that he keeps there.
2: Oh, nice. It would have been a recent release. Did you see it recently?
1: I mean, the old Grot Bomber you're talking about. Oh, dang. He may still have that. I bring up Spot a lot. He's pretty much been my introduction to the world of Warhammer 40k and just Warhammer fantasy, as a matter of fact. We had some other stuff for Lord of the Rings come out, though, didn't we?
2: Yes. So, in addition to that, the Lord of the Rings Middle-Earth battle game, yeah, Middle-Earth strategy battle game, has... Received a terrain and a campaign supplement.
1: Was this for the people for the Rohan people, or am I yes, thinking the, something different?
2: Yes, the men of Rohan are getting. They have their longhouses and palisade walls, mm-hmm. and a book, a new source book for uh, like fights taking place in that land. The game looks interesting. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever be able to break down and buy a set, but I like the the principle of it. You get a lot of models. The models are. Affordable, especially for a licensed product. Oh. And uh, well, they may be like one purpose, like it, it's kind of like Warhammer Fantasy, like they all have to be like spearmen, swordsmen, yada yada yada. The terrain pieces are beautiful. I'm tempted to get some houses, or at least the palisade walls, and pair them up with my tree houses, whose platforms, by the way, are from the Hobbit Goblin Town sets they released some years back as well.
1: I do have a question. Are they designing these pretty much from whole cloth, or are they actually working with the people from to
2: Weta Workshop? Yeah. Yes, they're using Weta Workshop's designs as references. Nice. So they are creating replica armor, replica everything in that 32 millimeter scale.
1: That is very, very sweet.
2: Or was it 32 or 25? I think it might be 25 millimeter, actually. Okay. Instead of 28, which is technically the scale of Warhammer.
1: And then we get to, of course, the blood angel stuff.
2: Ah, oh, yes. We got Mephiston. We got new rules supplement. Not to ignore the Tyranids who are opposed to the uh, blood angels in that campaign supplement.
1: There's going to be new Tyranid miniatures?
2: No, but new Tyranid rules and updates.
1: But in that Blood of Baal book.
2: Yes. So it's not just a... It's not just crunch. It's also fluff. You okay. get a bunch of new moving forward story elements for the Blood Angels. Mm-hmm. They've been assailed by the uh, the Tyranids in the past and it looks like they're at a breaking point where their plants kind of had, balls had taken enough and it looks like, at least with the setup beforehand, it looks like the uh, Blood Angels might actually be overrun, like their plan might actually be destroyed.
1: I actually read a short story on the Warhammer community today called Sanguine. Where it was from the point of view of three of the sanguinarium, like, uber blood angel types.
2: Oh, you mean the um, the sanguinary guards?
1: San- yeah, thank you. Sanguinary guards. The, the golden boys. They describe themselves in the story as, as space marines are to humans, the sanguinary guard are to us. Yeah. And the short story was basically told from the point of view of one of three of these guys, basically on a planet that has just been overrun by a tyrannid horde. There is a Tyranid Leviathan in orbit, and the atmosphere is changing. The planet itself is dying. Yeah. And some Lictors show up and take out two of these guys instantly. I did read that,
2: yeah. He's lying on the ground in his final moments. Exactly. He's just ripping and tearing.
1: Ripping and tearing, and he finally takes out this Lictor and then turns around and sees all of these other tyranids coming at him and it's like you know what i'm dying anyway and just lets the black rage overtake him and mm-hmm. starts laughing all right come get some you know Yep. it was fun to read it was dark and of course a little bit depressing but in this case it was fun to read i quite liked it
2: and i'd say that is that is the essence of warhammer right there yeah the idea the, the the essence is it's not so much that there's a hopeful element or a um like a a greater purpose in that regard the thing is like it is a war that must be fought down to the last man
1: finding strength against overwhelming adversity
2: exactly it is the conflict conflict drives the universe of warhammer 40k
1: i do know that as a result i went back through our rentals and put up a slide on the site for some lictors that we actually have for rent, those manted ones. Yes, yes. I put up a slide for it. It's like, okay, hey, look, there's going to be Blood Angel stuff. People might have read this little short story. Let's get some lictors out so they can see.
2: Yeah. Uh, my Those should be for sale as well, actually.
1: They are. I mean, you can contact us to find out how much those are. There.
2: They're very beautiful. I would highly recommend them. I would buy them myself if I had the budget. um,
1: If you've ever seen pictures online of these really, really pretty, leafy-looking mantids who are all white, green, and pink. Yeah, mantises. Whoever painted these, was uh, it—do you know who it was, Ryan or Preston? I don't remember. It may have been Andy. Might have been Andy. But the color scheme on these lictors was done very much in that very flowery mantis kind of style.
2: That was was the intent. They are referred to as the the orchid uh, mantis kill team.
1: Right. And honestly, go to the website and have a look at them. It's going to be awesome for your eyes. As far as the Blood Angels go, we'll probably get into them. Let's actually not even get into another segment here. Let's actually talk about the Blood Angels a little bit. Sure, sure. Because I had the opportunity to write a blog entry about them this week and learned quite a bit, like a little bit earlier, where we're talking about Horace finding out about Sanguinius and his unfortunate compulsion.
2: Yeah, his condition.
1: For those who are not aware of them, and I can't, from what I've read, I can't imagine people into Warhammer not knowing about the Blood Angels. I mean, in a nutshell, how would you describe them to somebody who doesn't know about them? So we kind of put this Blood of Baal book and this Mephiston release into sharp relief and why you should be interested.
2: So, well, the problem with Blood Angels is that they have to be familiar with space brains already. So you know that you know these space marines? Yeah, they're space marines, but they're also sp- vampires.
1: Not quite,
2: though. Yeah, I know. Because I, I I told you that too. It's like
1: that's now I know what you meant when you said they're not quite vampires. They're kind of, sort of, but you'd have to read the thing. So I did read the thing, and yeah, no, they're not. They're superficially
2: vampires in the most superficial way you can imagine. They have fangs. They drink blood, but they don't burn up in the sunlight.
1: Put it this way, so. Going back a little bit further, uh, on the assumption maybe you don't know about space marines either.
0: Mm-hmm. Way
1: back in the day, the emperor Dis- of all mankind, seeing that he's got a threat that needs to be addressed by xenomorphs and looking to expand humankind. Everything and con- in the galaxy
2: wants to kill humanity, Yeah, basically.
1: And he needs a response to that. So he generates what are essentially 20 demigod-level human beings using all manner of genetic sorcery and human enhancement technology and comes up with these guys who are just the paragons of strong humanities to make into warriors. And then they're all stolen and flung all over the universe.
2: Yep. These uses he, the leftovers to make uh, genetically engineered super soldiers that are eight feet tall.
1: Right. So you've got these twenty Primarchs or paragons somewhere out in the universe, and we've got one named Sanguinius, from whom the Blood Angels, or in this back in the day, were still the ninth legion, mm-hmm. from which they were tailored. He lands on a planet called Baal and or rather the second moon of Baal,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you've got locals called the People of the Blood, of course. And they look at him to start with, and they're about to kill him because they look at his little infant butt and they see the wings coming out of his back and go, mutant. Mm -hmm. But eventually their better natures take over and they don't kill him, they raise him up instead. He grows up rather quickly, fills out his wings, and by the time the Emperor starts going all over human space and the Imperium using his very prodigious yes, psychic the abilities... Yes,
2: crusade to reunite all of humanity's scattered colonies. Right. By might.
1: While he's out there doing that, he's using his prodigious psychic abilities to find his Primarchs as well, the ones that he lost.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: And when he shows up, on the second moon of Baal he finds that the locals are worshipping Sanguinius as a god
2: <laughs> yeah this is not uncommon all the Primarchs were destined for greatness and on each of their individual plants they all made significant impacts on the world and potentially worlds around them mm-hmm. in the case of Conrad Kurz he basically became the Punisher Batman Conan the, uh, Conan the King is what uh, a friend of mine referred to
1: him as Uh, I keep, whenever somebody mentions it, I always hear Mako's voice going, Destined to wear the jeweled crown of the Imperium Secondus upon a troubled brow. Yeah. So, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Of course, Sanguinius... Also, in defiance of most kinds of encounters like these, when the Emperor shows up, we don't have the Marvel misunderstanding happen where immediately they set to fighting with one another. Right. In this case, Sanguinius goes, Oh, I've been waiting for you, and kneels before him and says, Yeah, I want to be part of your Imperium. Here are my warriors. Can you make them space marines too? Yeah. Okay, yeah, let, let's take your gene seat. Oh, glad you're not fighting me on this. Well, well done.
2: It went, uh, as well as it probably could have. There weren't that many Marvel misunderstandings, from what I understand.
1: I imagine some were understandably dubious.
2: Yes, uh, in the case of Lehman Russ, they, were, they basically were in a, um, it was a competition of strength. It was, originally, it was a feasting, fighting, and there was a third one, I think.
1: Are we talking about the salamanders now?
2: No, Lehman Russ. Because there was Wolves. a competition there, too. There was a competition there.
1: That's why they're called salamanders, because him and the Emperor were looking to get one and catch one.
2: Yes, the great fire drakes that uh, lived on the moons of Nocturne and the. Uh...
1: And Dorn. Not Dorn. Was it Dorn?
2: That was Vulcan.
1: Vulcan, yeah.
2: I Vulcan. don't know what Do- uh, Dorn's deal
1: was. I know Vulcan essentially gave up his catch to the Emperor and well, the Emperor, well, the Emperor was so saved impressed. him. Yeah. The Emperor saved him and he was like, you know what? I won this contest, but you really won by saving me. I'm yours. <laughs> so. Yep.
2: Yeah, which again establishes Vulcan's character of putting life above honor.
1: You know, I really like Vulcan, by the way. Absolutely. Vulcan
2: is Vulcan is quite possibly the, the most the strongest force of good in the galaxy.
1: Sanguinius, on the other hand, I hear him described over and over again as, well, Horus and all these other primarchs that were eventually all found and brought back together. They all talk about, we are all sons of the emperor. We were derived from his genetic material. But of us all, Sanguinius is probably the truest, most accurate representation of our father. Mm -hmm. If anybody's to inherit the Imperium after his passing, it should have been him.
2: Mm -hmm. Though Horus was the favorite son.
1: Horus was the favorite son, but even Horus was going, yeah, it probably should be him. Mm -hmm. Now that said, much later, we've got how the Ninth Legion is essentially helping with all the expansion, and we eventually come to some bad points. And I say in the blog post, just like in the Book of Mormon, here's the part of the story that just gets a little bit sad. Horus stumbles upon poor Sanguineus, who has just murdered one of his people, to slake a problem that he's got, where he needs to drink blood. Mm -hmm. And it's not to keep him very much alive, he's not got this unholy craving in...
2: It's a psychological thing.
1: Right, it's a psychological thing that has to be slaked, or he goes increasingly and more insane as he gets more and more thirsty for it.
2: By the way, did we mention Sanguinius is a powerful psyker? Yeah. His perks need to be satisfied, or else you've got a berserk wizard going around casting spells, and everyone turns into newts.
1: So, not quite vampires. They're not going to go out into the sun and crumble into ash. They're not going to re- be repulsed from garlic or anything like that. Yeah, we couldn't but be possibly blo- that that lucky. But they do need the blood. Yep. And it's, of course, this that Horus uses to drive a wedge into the Ninth Legion and seduce several of those legionnaires away for some of the traitor legions that get used in the heresy.
2: Mm-hmm. Or at least the, the imperial propaganda in universe portrays allegiance as either being wholly loyal or wholly heretic but this was never the case not
1: at all members of
2: the the emperor's children the death guard yeah traitor traitor and loyalist alike there would be schisms between them
1: exactly so in this case we finally get to the heresy itself earth is cut off from ultramar where you've got gilliman who's wondering what to do about this earth has been cut off i can't figure out where it is Well, I suppose what we'll do for the moment is establish a second Imperium. And they actually crown Sanguinius Emperor of that until they find out that Earth does still exist, or excuse me, Terra still exists. Mm -hmm. And we need to go with all speed to help the Emperor. On the other side of the center of the Milky Way, where all this chaos is pouring out... Horus is over on Earth's side laying siege to Terra, and it's not going well for Earth. Terra's really kind of hedged in. The mm-hmm. Imperial fists have built as much fortification as they can, but, but they it's are only about a matter one legion,
2: of time. But one legion against three... Or was it five?
1: I'm one legion sure. against many. Very many. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Horus is in the system on his flagship, about to bring it all down, and that's when some of, but he wants to make this happen before all the other loyalist legions show up. Mm -hmm. He knows he's only got a bit of a window here. It's not the complete route he was hoping for.
2: And he doesn't want to get sandwiched. He's got all, there's a, there's an, the earth is the anvil and the incoming fleets are the hammer. And he doesn't, and he doesn't want to get caught between them.
1: And Sanguinius shows up among the vanguard of those who are coming to help.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Notably, the Dark Angels were absent, which is part of their eternal shame, part, part of their nature as the uh, the Unforgiven, oh. is that they were not there to protect the Emperor.
1: Was that by choice or by happenstance?
2: It was due to partially confusion. I don't know if this is before or after the heresy. The schism between Luther and the Lion, Luther being like one of his first captains, or one, one of his leading captains, is where we get the, the schism between the Dark Angels and and the, uh, the 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 unforgiven and the the fallen, okay. Because basically misinformation had both Luther and Lionel Johnson thinking the both of them had turned heretic, all right, and caused Luther to open fire upon the lion's ship. as I it think entered that was all Caliban. part of
1: what the Imperium Secondus falling apart. Ah. Because I remember that when they were doing the trial of Conrad Kurz there, Lionel Johnson and Gilliman and, of course, Sanguinius were all present when Conrad Kurz was, hey, I'm just as the Emperor made me. What's the big deal here? Mm -hmm. But back to the Siege of Terra, Sanguinius has shown up with some of his cohort. And Horus is looking to wrap this up quick because reasons. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Horus decides to make an endgame play. It's like, hey, Emperor, how about you come up to my battleship? we will settle this as men.
2: So not not as men, but as elevated beings. Right,
1: as sort of men.
2: As hu- humans beyond human.
1: Neo-men, I suppose you can call them. But Sanguinius goes up there with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, this is a flagship that is of an instrument of chaos now, and mm-hmm. naturally they all get separated. And Sanguinius comes on Horus, and of course we get this great big tragic fight between... These two people that used to be the closest of battle brothers. Mm-hmm.
0: You were the chosen one. It was said that you would destroy this, Sith, not join them.
1: But Sanguinius has been fighting his way through this ship the entire time. He's worn down and he's, a li- he's tired. He's probably a little bit wounded here, too. Of course, Horus is the complete opposite of that. He's that.
2: juiced up on that chaos.
1: He's juiced up full of chaos god energy. He is the favor of all four fresh. chaos gods. And even between the two of them, were they fully rested and fresh? The materials I was looking at suggested that Sanguinius probably was not the match of Horus.
2: No. Not in his state anyway.
1: But they did fight, and of course, Horus kills him. Mm-hmm. Not only does he kill him, he kills him so painfully, so traumatically, so awfully that the psychic impact of Sanguinius's death resounds throughout space and time, all the way down his genetic line. And this comes to the second curse when it comes to your blood angels. Not only do they have the red thirst, they have the black rage. And this black rage is essentially the death agonies of Sanguinius, his anger, frustration, pain, betrayal, all of that resounding into one single enraged moment that goes down any recipient of Sanguinius's line or gene seed, which is essentially all of them.
2: Yep, and it is manifest as the battle brothers seeing themselves in the visage of Sanguinius
1: at the moment he is dying at Horus's hand,
2: mm-hmm. or rather, Sanguinius uh, challenging Horus with like all his his rage, pain, and. Uh, fervor.
1: That whole battle just replaying in their minds over and over again. And as they fall further and further to the Red Thirst, the less resistant to it that they become. So of course... As they become more and more insane, and finally get to the point where they can, they're going to cross the threshold into madness. They mm-hmm. finally succumb not only to the red rage, but the, the red thirst, but the black rage
2: too. Where they become a, just a berserk, mindless killing machine that has to be interred into these companies, where they either die in battle. Or kill everybody and come back for another battle.
1: Yeah. If you've seen Space Marines, you will note the blue armor and how they all have their own livery or different color schemes. And, of course, our blood angels, being blood angels, are all going to be very deep, blood-red armored people. These people going into death companies, however, that's what they call them. They're put into black battle suits with great big red X's on their pauldrons.
2: And uh, sometimes on their legs or or foreheads.
1: And honestly, I mean, it's like, I see the visual joke there. It's almost like they're being crossed off. Yeah. These ones have gone off. Let's send them in. And they go in and essentially fight themselves until they can't fight anymore. They are marked for death. Right. Berserkers, it's like, all right, well, you've lost your mind. You're not useful to anyone except for killing. Go that way, kill as many as you can, may the luck of the Emperor go with you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Some
2: even get interred into dreadnoughts.
1: Exactly. That's somewhat unthinkable to me. Dreadnoughts, of course, for our people who are not familiar. space marine... A space
2: marine who is either unable to recover from their injuries or is practically one step from death. They are referred to as dead and may have been revived. They are basically no longer able to use their body... So, like, they may have, like, a too much, like, no longer have the battle prowess needed to wave their, to aim their gun, wave their sword, or march forward.
1: These are not just people in battle armor anymore. They've, they're essentially what's left of these people in a full-body prosthetic.
2: Exactly. The machine is hooked up to their nervous system.
1: Except this full-body prosthetic is a gigantic war machine.
2: Yes, (laughs) A heavily armored killing machine the likes of which uh metal gear comes to mind
1: now the blood angels as far as that goes they're still very much a cohesive and very honorable unit
2: yes they they are marked by their noble theme they're seen as both like nobility as in like a higher upper class and also of noble spirit
1: There is actually a difference in their recruiting style. Many of the other chapters will go and find very experienced warriors of battle prowess and raise them up to space marine superhuman status. Mm -hmm. The Blood Angels do, in very much contrast, find people on Baal Secondus who are afflicted people people who are afflicted with disease or poverty or both, people very much from the lowest station in life, and raise them up to superhuman status so that that humility comes with them. Mm. And as a result, these very humble-type people are brought up to this superhuman status with a sense of honor, duty, and they're always seeking to be more perfect than they are they want to be paragons like their Primarch was
2: so it's a legion of steve rogers
1: very much so very much captain america crossed with alucard honorable son of dracula if you follow castlevania type games and or the new anime Mm -hmm. so that's for the most part blood angels Aside from the fact that they're masters of aerial combat, mm-hmm. that's usually their thing. You and know? melee.
2: And melee. Most... They have a flying dreadnought.
1: Not only do they have their flying dreadnought, they also have an advanced sort of flyer. Like there was the, like we were talking about, the standard accepted template from the people on Mars. Based on the Blood Angels input, a newer, more advanced flyer update was designed and approved by the people on Mars. That sounds
2: unconventional for them.
1: It was unconventional, but essentially the Blood Angels, based on their input, made a far superior flyer, and it was, they were used as the test bed for this.
2: you talking about their jump
1: packs? No, I'm talking about actual flying airplane unit type deals. Air units. Air fighters. And right now... I know that there are older, the more standard accepted template among the Space Marines, but these newer ones are only now being introduced to the other chapters. The Blood Angels are already masters of it. It was based on their research and their fighting techniques. They're using this like masters already, and the other chapters are all going, wow, how'd you get so good at it? We helped develop it. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. <laughs> Which probably brings us to the close as far as what's new as well. We wanted to bring in Blood Angels to this because we had the other couple of books. And I happen to know a little bit about it and could talk about it to some degree. But we'll be back after this. We're going to kind of get into a segment where we're talking about Tao. Right, we're back now. So, getting into a subject that Hunter's going to know a lot more about than me, because I have not researched this yet, and of course I'm not part of the gaming community as much as Hunter is, we're going to talk a bit about the Tau, and the stigma that was mentioned a little bit earlier during our opening.
2: Yes, so there is a phenomenon that I and many Tau players have noticed against the Tau. Now... Well, you, you look like you have a question.
1: Well, I wanted to make a clarification just for those who, of course, may not be familiar because audio format. In Warhammer 40K, we, of course, have extensions of your classic fantasy races. We've got orcs, we've got elves. We've even got a version of the undead in as far as the Necron go.
2: Mm-hmm. The Tyranids are kind of like the Skaven in space, but replace uh, with
1: Xenomorphs. Yeah, re-
2: throwing some Xenomorphs. Replace their the rat swarm with like a bug swarm. It's a different kind of vermin.
1: So you've got all of these science fiction analogs of fantasy races, and then you've got the Tau, which are very much not.
2: No, they're not easy to pin down. They're certainly not dwarves. We had dwarves once. They're called the Squats. And then they uh, disappeared for a very long time.
1: In this case, what we've got is more a straight-up Warhammer emulation of alien conspiracy theory type iconography. The grays with the big eyes and the somewhat thin and under-muscled frames.
2: Physically speaking, kind of. One thing that I've noticed that's sort of an interesting deviation is that they have hooves instead of, like, bipedal mammalian feet.
1: Ungulates? Okay.
2: Yes, yes they have a uh, solid hoof, an uncloven hoof with, like, one little, like, side toe. Hmm. And they have, like, four fingers.
1: That's almost, almost, in my head, that one World of Warcraft race. Uh, Draenei? Draenei, yeah.
2: They don't have tails and they don't have horns. But they do have the hooves. They're not really goat people. They're uh, they're, they're, they're the Tau. They're their own race. Yeah. And they come in four varieties. Actually, five.
1: These are the different castes, yes?
2: Yes. Now, whether or not the castes were always like this, or if they uh, were engineered this way by the Ethereals, is fairly unknown.
1: Explain the Ethereals for a moment. The
2: Ethereals, at least in Tau myth, which may also be engineered basically showed up while the other four tribes were warring against each other and basically united them in, under a single purpose. Okay. They're intensely charismatic and actually have are known to have outside the Tao Empire at least have pheromonal control over them. Much like how you said with like uh, the suggestion they're ab- it's implied that they're able to persuade, uh, chemically persuade or have them recognized as rulers without even having to force
1: they can essentially reframe a situation to suit their benefit
2: exactly they're revered greatly by the Tao, and any other one will gladly give their life to protect the ethereal
1: i'm guessing it's a blessing or at least a kindness that these ethereals presumably have an honorable purpose
2: uh, sort of like they're they're pretty much the de facto leaders there's an easy parallel between them and like japanese feudal lords
1: Ah, okay.
2: So there, there's a there's a not terribly subtle uh, sort of Eastern influence on the Tao
1: Empire. I was getting that. As far as casts go, I was thinking more Indian than Japanese, but yeah, Japanese probably fits this too.
2: hmm but that's kind of the basic framework. You've got the only cast you really see on the table are the fire warriors. The fire cast are basically the military bunch. They're beefy, stocky, usually taller than most other ones, and they are the ones that are sent to the battle.
1: The ones the really science fictioning rifles, or maybe piloting mechs. Yes, the or... ones with a
2: uh, with a battle lust. The other three casts are relegated to more society roles. Earth cast being laborers, water cast being merchants, diplomats, and basically I would also assume retail, or approximates <laughs> to retail. <laughs> yes, imperialist Japan comes to mind as well. Okay, uh,
1: they had merchants. I can deal. Yeah, it.
2: and the air cast are curiously enough pilots just strictly pilots. Hmm. So they pilot the war machines as uh, spacecraft, just uh, civilian shuttles, all of that.
1: And here's a thing, by the way, and we didn't mention this when we were talking about what's new. Mm -hmm. The Tau, up until this point, have no psychers, correct?
2: Absolutely. They actually, this has been noted by xenobiologists in the Imperium... And as well as uh, psychers and basically what uh, the greatest scientific minds the Imperium can offer, they have little to no psychic resonance. Like a human soul has a certain psychic resonance to other psychers. Mm -hmm. So other psychers observing uh, Tau notice that there is little to nothing there, which is why the Tao have not experienced any demonic incursions on their own. They have simply shown up as less than or equal to most animals.
1: Now, we talked about this in the Crackpot Theories last episode, where you were talking about how the Ethereals, there may be something to do with them and this upcoming psychic
0: Awakening. awakening.
1: Now, at Warhammer Day, they also released the names of some of the upcoming volumes to do with Psychic Awakening. Mm -hmm. And one of them was called The Greater Good. This is going to be slated for February of this coming year.
2: And anyone who knows anything about the Tao recognizes The Greater Good as the highest philosophical tenet of Tau society.
1: This is what they all aspire to.
2: Yes, as I said earlier, any Tau would willingly give their life to protect the ethereal. The greater good represents the plan of the ethereals and Tau, by extension, the Tau race. They want to expand beyond their borders. They wish to spread their philosophy. They wish to make themselves a mighty empire, all for the betterment of tau tau hence the greater good.
1: Almost like expansionist Buddhists
2: yeah, or again, imperial Japan,
1: of course, which probably has a little bit of Buddha going on here.
2: Yeah, yeah, they, everyone. And ancestor from worship there. as well. Mm-hmm.
1: We actually have somewhat of a confirmation of the crackpot theory now that we know there's going to be this psychic awakening book to do with the Tau later on, or at least so we assume it's an informed decision or assumption.
2: Yeah, so because who else is going to fight the Tao? The Ultramarines. What they, already have, they don't really have... They're not exactly known for their psychic prowess.
1: That said, some of the research I did, Ultramar is right next to the Tau Empire.
2: Which is why I brought them up. Space Marine faction the Tau have had the most contact with would likely be the Ultramarines next to the White Scars and Raven Guard during the Damocles Crusade.
1: I'm thinking the only th- problem the Ultramarines would probably have with them is that they're alien. Otherwise they would seem to be somewhat similar in goal and or honorable intention.
2: Yes, they both have a very practical approach to combat and other things. For the, They even have a similar rule. The Ultramarines get to disengage from combat and shoot on the board. Normally you can't disengage and then shoot in the same turn. A lot of Tal units can do that already or, or unite their firepower because they're ranged combat. They're very Napoleonic in that style. They don't Engage in melee so unless they have to. They just shoot from a distance because.
1: Hit and run or basically. Um, just gun lines. DPS.
2: Line them up, shoot.
1: Okay, phalanxes almost.
2: Yes, but from a distance.
1: From a distance. The best way to do it, says mm-hmm. I who play snipers. But. Well, rep- this, is, this is
2: where we get into the part, the controversial part about the Tau with the players. So in universe, the Tau are kind of like. The youngest race. They didn't show up until the last several thousand years, whereas the Horus Heresy happened, the Necrons and the Eldar were duking it out with the, uh, the orcs long before then.
1: Or rather, and, they were probably there, we just didn't discover them until the last few thousand years. No,
2: no, the, the Tao Society is only about 10,000 years old. Oh, okay. They're they're very young in terms of race. They so
1: they've only just recently become a spacefaring race.
2: Yes, they only recently evolved to the point of intelligence, but developed very quickly over a span of time under the guidance of the Ethereals. Okay. So with the Ethereals already being there, they did not have any schisms, societal setbacks, or other things. They were able to quickly solve their problems. So in this case, they have had a very sheltered and very um,
1: almost charmed life. In comparison. Yes, it's very ch-
2: Exactly. A charmed life in a galaxy of horrors. And while they have they are not strangers to war, they have conquered... They, they have basically spoken softly, carried a big stick, and conquered anyone who disagreed with them.
1: They've carved out a substantial portion of the Western Spiral Arm, it looks like.
2: Yes. They've had no less than three outward expansions from their empire before even making contact with humanity.
1: You will find later in the episode what... I'm actually doing a short story that deals with the outer portions of the universe, or rather, the Milky Way galaxy, and I was looking for a good place to set this on the outskirts of, the furthest point away from Terra I could find. And as I was looking way out in the western spiral arm, okay, is anybody out here? Oh, the tower out here. Okay, well, we can't put them there. Well, the tower everywhere out here. Wow, I'm going to have to go out way past, say, the... Mandragora sector, or perhaps.
2: You could actually put them near Tau space, because the Tau wouldn't conquer them unless they uh, they were of strategic or economic value.
1: Now, see, the more I hear about the Tau, the more I like what I'm hearing as far as who would I want to play. Yeah. They seem to be honorable and interesting in a way that, to me, the humans are not.
2: To a certain degree, yes. The thing is is that, and that's partially what makes them so controversial, is that there is no morally righteous faction within Warhammer 40,000. But when the Tau were new, it seemed like they had no flaws, which bothered a great deal of players within the player base, from what I understand. People liked their grim universe, and here we have the Tau Empire, who are friends with everybody they meet who don't seem to have any particular vices or I- internal issues or power struggles or politics or stuff like that, because everything's laid out for them. They do have, as time went on, they were able to develop them more and actually show the, show the dark side of the towel, where, like, F- Commander Farsight, one of their foremost generals... Basically, the pupil to their own races, Sun Tzu, discovers that the um, the tower basically... That the Ethereals are just using them as their... The, his, his own soldiers are little more than just pieces on a chessboard to further their own goals. Aww. And Farsight, who values the lives of his soldiers, does not wish to be another pawn for them any longer because he's been... He's not being valued as an equal among them. He's, and he wants to, but he still wants to protect the Tau Empire. He fakes his death. He leaves. He forms his own enclave and protects Tau space from invaders such as the Tyranids or the orcs, uh, for, while still rebelling against the Empire.
1: By the way, I got to pull out the grease gun here because, of course, we're, we want we want to help out White Metal Games whenever we can. I will mention that some months ago. I put up a slide for Commander Farsight's... Eight.
2: Eight. Yes, the eight. Commander Farsight's Elite Guard.
1: That Elite Guard, sh- unless we sold them, should still be for rent. Mm-hmm. You or can- sale. All right. And you can certainly find them, of course, at the store on whitemetalgames.com. I gotta mention it. Mm-hmm. So we've got Commander Farsight, who's formed his own enclave to keep them from being pawns of the Ethereals. They mean to have the greater good in mind, but they apparently have their own goals as well. They're not the super honorable people that we were initially led to believe, I guess.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, the Tao have actually shown a penchant for the, um, th- the thing is, they're always expanding and they're always like, they're always pushing the next scientific leap at any cost. Their losses mean little to the Ethereals to the point where they were even testing gene-stealer hybrids on their own kind. Oh. There is, there's a, you kind of see like the dark side of science in the, behind the, the great leaps and values. Science
1: without, without wisdom.
2: Exactly. If you've
1: seen the meme about how some scientists are looking to resurrect maybe dinosaurs or clone one, I know I saw something recently that put forward the idea that we have actually manipulated genetically a chicken to be a T-Rex embryo and how we hope to hatch it and see what happens and the immediate responses in the thread are, okay, there are six whole movies why this is a bad idea. What are you thinking? Just
2: gifts of Jeff Goldblum saying, oh
1: yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and, and screaming. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I can get that. That would of course be a nicely acceptable flaw for a species like this. That would They're be incredibly scary.
2: curious, and yeah. they don't know where to put a boundary. There is no boundary for them. There is no evil they can commit that outweighs the gr- the pull of the greater good.
1: Honestly, I'm liking these people the more and more I, I hear them. Even with their flaws, I mm. like the sound of these people.
2: And here's the thing. They're fairly new. They were introduced in the year 1999 to an already 10-year-old game, I'd say. Around Yeah, a 9- or 10-year-old game. Whereas all the other factions existed in the story. The Tau are the newcomers, both in-universe and... To the game itself. Ever since then, there's not been a new, a truly new faction to the Warhammer 40k universe.
1: I will say that by the time they were introduced, I would imagine the player base is already fairly invested in the existing races humans, orcs, elves, whatever, or excuse me, Ildari. But They're space at the elves. time, no one's, no one's being fooled. Yeah, I know. But at the time the tower introduced, and they seem to have no flaws. If you're already invested in these other races and now you've got somebody you might want to play a little bit more but you don't really have the capital to get into because you're already invested in so much else, Mm -hmm. there might be a bit of cognitive dissonance here as to why you would diss the Tau the way you're doing. It's like, well, they're really good and... Man, it probably would have been good to play ten years ago, but now I'm playing a human, and I'm a human player, and I'm sticking with it. And if you play Tao, you're probably a Wiyabu or something like that.
2: It's not quite like that. It's it's combination of that. It's not it's not jealousy. There's certainly a lot to not be jealous of for the Tao. It's the way they play, which is in stark contrast to literally everything else. They're too simply too different. They're easy to single out. Here's the thing. Okay, let me let me go into the full. Full-on rant here, okay? Give us the rant.
1: This is okay, actually kind the of
2: towel are The Tau have, like, Gundam influences, so you got, like, the anime thing there. It's very different from the gothic or gritty diesel punk style of the game.
1: I quite like that design, too, by mm-hmm. the
2: way. I, I do as well. Um, they've got... They have little to no melee units. They strictly fight in shooting, which takes out easily half the combat phase.
1: By the way... I'm gonna get up for a moment because there's something across the room I want to look at. Go ahead and keep talking.
2: Okay. So they look like anime figures. They've only got guns. They have they have fewer flaws, or rather fewer established flaws than the other factions. That makes them stand out as well. They're not even good warriors in combat. That's the other thing is that they're they're markedly bad in melee. It's not that they don't have melee weapons. They haven't weapons.
1: had forty thousand years to perfect it like the humans and other races have.
2: Right. Right. Or they. And the They tend to use what people would consider cowardly tactics and other ones, where they basically fight and fade away. Their stealth suits are cheap and easily spammable. Drones are a point of contention because you can literally intercept the most powerful blast in the game with a single robot and just kill your one eight-point model while protecting your... 200 point model from a death blast that may have wiped them off the field by the way, the reason
1: i got up while he was telling you all this across the room from us there were two whole boxes of a tau army here full of people that we could look at while we were looking at these this wasn't
2: even scripted so um the thing is is that these the tau there is a reason for people to not particularly like them and i've being being a bit older now, I understand that. But here's the thing: you cannot like the Tau Empire. And I understand fish of fury was a thing back in the day. Fish of fury? Yes, those things before you are the uh, hammerheads, but they double as devilfish if you take off the um, the top uh, gun and you basically add a a gatling gun on the front and repl- make those two drums.
1: If you and this is movie references again, if you can imagine the M C P S tanks from Tron. Crossed with uh, trade federation tanks from Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Exactly right. Between those two, we're kind of in sync here. Can you mm-hmm. feel it? Yeah. If you can cross those two, you're looking at the Tau tanks I'm looking at right now.
2: Mm-hmm. So they're a uh, devilfish. All their vehicles are named after sea life.
1: Okay. So fish you've got the hammerhead irony.
2: tanks. The the devilfish are their dedicated transports. You would take these guys, who I really think look like Napoleonic soldiers with their long rifles.
1: This was what initially drew me to looking at them in the first place, this Mm. blocky kind of long rifle design. Mm -hmm. So
2: here's the other thing. Their guns are super powerful. They don't have a very good ballistic skill. They're basically uh, guard units. They four-up ballistic skill 50-50. But they have long-range strength five weapons. To put this in perspective, humans are toughness three. Space Marines are toughness four. These are strength five rifles, so they're easy. They easily wound Space Marines,
1: and they're not slug throwers either. These are energy weapons.
2: These are these are finely tuned plasma strength weapons. Okay. So the plasma weapons that the Imperium has so much difficulty uh, t- taming, the Tau just start off with plasma weaponry that that is finely honed to punching holes in your uniforms.
1: The imagery that I remember as far as the Imperium goes and humans with plasma rifles, there is this image I remember of a space marine kind of holding a plasma rifle way out at arm's length, kind of holding his face and uh, looking in the other direction going, oh, God, please don't explode while he's aiming it. Because in
2: older editions, not 8th edition, if you rolled a one firing a plasma weapon, they would explode and melt down.
1: Oh gosh! Okay, we've, so. got,
2: we've got decades of history that aren't this eighth edition going back, which is causing some of the stigma. Space Marines were could be risky sometimes. Tau seemed very low risk, and you could hold them back for much of the game. Um, Moreover,
1: that while the humans are almost in a scientific decline because of so long, they're
2: in a golden age.
1: They're in a scientific. The tower in a scientific golden age.
2: They are basically at the point humanity was during the during before the Horus Heresy, during the Great Crusade, where technology was in boom. They had everything, and that's where the tower are now.
1: There is, of course, the concept of any society that is not moving forward in its steps of discovery and scientific advancement must be subject to an even stronger force holding that back. And of course, in the human's case, you've got the war against chaos and how it's destroying their infrastructure and their ability to create or become discoverers of new things on a constant basis, so much to the point that the humans have almost reverted back into superstition and magical thinking when it comes to their technology.
2: I'm going to have to correct you there, though, because superstition is validated because it is powered by spirits and demons are real. Yeah. All superstition in the 41st millennium is warranted. It's not baseless, whereas the orcs are actually superstitious. But it warps reality.
1: <laughs> we believe it's going to work, therefore it does. It's the wily coyote sense of technology.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is why orcs are beloved by so many players, because there's so much even though they're horrible, like they're in universe, they're very oppressive and very um, they like to bully other races, and are...
1: I really do need to do an article where the noob looks into orcs.
2: (laughs) Mm, Yes, you do.
1: As a race in general, because I have a basic impression of them, but I'm sure a lot of that is misinformed.
2: So, yeah, so the the orcs are very, um, they're very brutish and thuggish, but that's part of their charm. They're perfectly suited for this grim, dark world. The Tal just feel out of place. They're bright-eyed idealists in a world full of laughing and thirsting gods, I believe the core rulebook says. So the Tao are already the odd kid. They're uh, not very athletic. They like to sit and read books, and they don't like to participate in physical PE. Sounds like me in high school. Exactly. So naturally, in the uh, the school, the elementary school that is the Warhammer universe, they get picked on by all the players. Most notably, of the Imperium factions. Yeah. The jocks
1: of the genre, I would guess.
2: Yes, so, and I've been subject to this many times during my uh, playing Tao. And after a while, I just kind of stopped playing Tao. Like, I kind of moved on to other things. I played fewer and fewer games. I still have them, and I'll still play them among friends. It's just, after a certain point, this is the main reason we brought this up is that friendly ribbing's fine, like just having a, a fun joke, or just... Bullying, as long as person,
1: however, is not. Well, that's the
2: thing, is that there's a point where the joke becomes too far, and it stops being a friendly joke, where the person involved, or person being the subject of the joke, is no longer in on it, or is no longer appreciating it, but the other people don't know when to stop.
1: Exactly. And,
2: and there's no easy way to communicate this.
1: It's like, hey, look, at this point... I understand we're still making fun. It's starting to feel a little bit persecutory.
2: Yes, and the, this this wasn't just me. This is another friend of mine uh, who also played Tao, and we basically we were the only ones that understood this because, like, he ended up kind of quitting the game and sold off all his Tao stuff. Oh. Yeah, he was never as serious as the rest of us, but it's like, still, it's like you you hate to see. You hate to see
1: anybody driven out of the community or the game when they were there to have fun.
2: But that's the only case I've seen. That's the only, that's the thing is, like, I love Warhammer, but that's the only time I've seen, like, a negative, actually negative thing come out of the Warhammer community is the, the stigma against Tau. No other faction has this. It's specifically the Tau Empire.
1: This sounds like pretty much the segment of the game that I would want to look at almost exclusively beyond the humans at this point. I, of course, I don't know about the orcs as much as I do. I know I'm somewhat attracted to them because of their almost goofiness, but oh, Absolutely. The idealism and scientific advancement part, that's very much a part of something I'm always geeking out about. I mean, when I changed my name back in 2012, literally my middle name is Sagan.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I was going to take somebody's name, gosh, who who better? But of course, my appreciation for science, advancement, idealism, it's something that's sorely lacking in Warhammer. And the introduction of it, I can see why it would be a positive thing. I mean, yeah, they're distance fighters. Yeah, it's DPS. Yeah, they're the new kids on the block, and yeah, they're the geeky ones. Doesn't make them any less valid if you want to look at the real world and see how the geeks have kind of inherited the earth from the jocks from the 1980s. I might,
2: I might have some things to say about that on other things, but you you need need the jocks to move the weight. Exactly. The geeks are not going to do any of the heavy lifting. Right. Yeah, I've I've spent time with both.
1: With your brains and my brawn, we'll make millions. <laughs>
2: yep, but uh, yeah, it's just like it's something. It's a phenomenon that can't be ignored. And you, one might assume one one from a background that doesn't understand Warhammer might assume oh, most like people most likely to be ridiculed within the Warhammer universe would be the women. No, that's not true at all. Like, the Warhammer community is fairly uh, equal opportunity as long as you don't bring unpainted gray models when you actually have time to paint. Even then, people are still pretty chill with unpainted gray models. It's just like, that's the most ridicule you usually find within a, 40, a Warhammer universe. It's like, did you paint your models? Okay, cool.
1: By the way, as a matter of almost complete irrelevance, do Tout have gender? Yes, they do. They are a... Uh, a bigendered race? Yes, that okay. Is,
2: but they both serve in combat, so whether you're a fire warrior, male or female, you're on active duty.
1: Well, gosh, that's good to hear too. Yeah. Again, more to recommend. Some are, some than are allowed to to raise
2: families. Some of the honor, more elevated ones, like Commander son's uh, father, was a decorated war hero who was allowed to raise his own child.
1: So they actually have to get approval for reproduction and that sort of thing.
2: Yes, or they have like state-sanctioned uh, reproduction. And or the children are raised off, uh, raised by genetic matons. programs. Of exactly. course, exactly eugenics. Sci- it's it's science without a leash.
1: Yeah, I was thinking. I wasn't thinking so much eugenics as the Bene Gesserit from Dune. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there is that too, because again, the cast they got to keep the cast separate. Yeah. So you've got the there's implications. Maybe implications. Maybe I'm just projecting here, but I think there was implications that the the casts were not as rigid back uh, before the ethereal showed up.
1: I want to go with the Benny Gesserit thing more than eugenics, because eugenics is a disproven science nowadays.
2: Mm. Well, but that has not stopped people from trying to... Uh, Unfortunately, yes. It doesn't stop selective breeding programs. We know it works with regular animals. Yeah. So it's very possible the ethereals had similar... Things like keep the, the strong muscular ones over here. In
1: the fire cast. The, the...
2: wiry, thin framed ones over here in the air cast so they can adapt to low gravity situations. The stocky, uh, but also very muscular, practical
1: ones in, in the, in the earth. earth and water casts.
2: Water cast for like the more uh, that have like higher.
1: High intelligence, low body. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly.
1: I'm going to get into this. I'm going to start reading up about Tau a lot now. Mm-hmm. Because the more I hear, the more I want to hear. I about recommend
2: it. getting the Tau Omnibus uh, series. There's some amazing stories in there. If if your friend Spot has uh, has the Omnibus, it gives you some stories from varying perspectives. I think I pretty much said everything I needed to. The the stigma to playing Tao, the answer and or it's a a good response, a good way to mitigate it. I don't think this is the end of the world. I don't think the uh, The Warhammer community is forever tainted by the actions of a few, but I have noticed it is common. Like, you look up Tao memes online, and almost certainly find most of them are just shit talking about the Tao. There's a few shit talking back where it's like, yeah, we can't do melee. It's a shame you'll never arrive.
1: That's too bad.
2: Yeah. You just need to. Make things more friendly and less.
1: Less sour grapey.
2: Not everyone role plays the Imperium or role plays their factions. If you guys are doing role play where it is like, filthy xenoscum, you shall not sully sl- sl- this land with your uh, uncloven hooves, fine, if you're all in on that, but don't. Don't
1: let it creep into your real life and how you interact with your other players, too. Yeah,
2: don't be like, yeah, you filthy cat towel player. It's like, what are you Mitigate do? the bleed, as it were. Yeah, just keep it civil you're not when you're not fighting keep it civil
1: (laughs) i quite agree let's keep it civil in any case that's going to be the end of this segment for right now we're going to get into that thing that i wrote up about pax unia just a little bit later and just a moment My name is not Shipmaster Binpack. Shipmaster Binpack was converted into several pieces of furniture that screamed the entire way through the Empyrean before he exploded all over the bridge crew. My name is Tobin Rose, and I was seconded to the Master of Cargo aboard the Pax Metallica to deliver supplies of a non-combat nature to the civilian planet of Sultan's Fancy in the Inwit Cluster. We were just making the translation from normal space when I'm guessing something unintended happened. Perhaps the Gellerfields malfunctioned. Who can say? I'm not one of the Mechanicus, and our tech priest, well, he was on the bridge. I was in one of the safety lockers at the time, and I didn't see what was going on, which I'm guessing was a mercy, though I could hear the captain screaming the entire time on the PA. The machine spirit in the ship's log showed me what happened to him from its black box. If we're being honest, I wish I hadn't looked at that. I could have spent the rest of my days having not seen that. As far as I'm aware, I am the last alive of the Pax Metallica. Where I am now, well... I remember hearing some of the Mechanicus once. This is while we were making port at Phobos taking on supplies. They were talking about megastructures, easy ways to get up and down a gravity well, and they talked about a giant ring in place of a planet. Their tone was dubious, as though such things were beyond the ken of mere men. I thought they meant a planet with rings, not a planet that was a ring. We were a smoking hulk when we came out of the Empyrean. I waited until there were no sounds before I came out. That was for the best considering what I found when I did. I'd suffered minor injury as the gravity had gone as well as most of the atmosphere, but the locker had a spacesuit in so that was okay. We had enough ox for me to breathe for a few weeks as long as I kept changing out my tanks on the regular. I stayed in my suit and I only explored when necessary. There weren't any rooms with pressure for me to change clothes in and I didn't want any accidents literally tearing me a new one. I tried to guess what our position was. There was a little white star in the distance, and there was a ring all the way around it. I mean, I guess it was a ring. It extended off into the distance, and it gets harder to see against the space around it. But it kind of follows, you know. I wouldn't like to guess how much space the locals have here or how much raw material went into building a thing like that. Let's call it a lot and be done with it. It was about three days in when the whole hulk lurched and started moving again under power. Not her own. The pact was done, but we... Well, I was being towed to what looked like a big asteroid tethered to the outer part of that big ring and what was towing me looked like a human holler with some green-skinned mods on the outside of it. Wherever I was, I was in enemy space, it looked like. When it was improper visual, I could see that the asteroid was one of many, tethered to the, I guess, the equator of the ring's width at regular intervals like. I wouldn't like to guess how far apart, because this thing is huge. Maybe every half million miles around the outside. I wouldn't like to guess. And the pack's machine spirits were for the most part asleep, or concussed. They didn't dock the packs to the thing. I think the idea was to leave us a safe enough distance from their dock, so if we exploded while they were stripping us for parts, we wouldn't be too much of a bother. With the outer wall looming in the distance, by his grace, it's the biggest thing I ever saw. And the mighty hands that built that I dare not contemplate. The Greenskins couldn't have made such. I heard the Necron had such tech prowess, but if they made such a thing, we are all of us doomed. Such talk is heresy on Terra, I know, but mankind has not seen the like of this. But as you still hear me speak, you know my tale is not done. And thereby there is still hope. I was foraging for gel packs for my suit's victuals and dumping the waste pouches down in the main cargo when they started cutting through the main hatch. My suit's visor engaged and I watched from a distance as a bright orange line drew itself around the inner side of the bulkhead. The breaching gel reached critical mass and blew the wall inward with a sound you felt more than you heard, but they'd more popped it inward than exploded it with a charge. Whatever it was in the hold they wanted, they wanted it unspoiled. I don't think they wanted me. I think they were shite surprised I was still breathing. And they were, I don't know how to explain this. I mean, maybe I'm dead or in a coma or insane or something, but it wasn't just green skins that came through. There were a few Tau as well. And there was an Ildari, an actual Ildari. I never thought I'd see one of those for real. And the weird part was they were salvaging together. Not one of them was trying to broil or hole the other ones. Some of them were even cracking jokes. I mean, they sounded like my crew. I got a few words here and there. They were speaking a patois of language. Grunts and poesy and imperial and some other gabble, which I guess was Tau. If they were demons, they'd have got me. I confess I was too shocked to move when their flashlights picked me out. I was just kind of frozen mid aisle, mid-gawp actually. I suppose it's good they didn't want to kill me, which was also pretty fucktangular. They didn't know what to do with me, though they were pretty excited. I think they were excited. I mean, I'd heard things about greenskins. I'd hoped they weren't hungry-like. Finally, one greenskin kind of thrusts over and magclamps himself to the floor. He tapped his helmet where his ears were inside and pointed at me. That was pretty universal, I thought. I mean, whatever race you are, spacers are primarily spacers. I turned on my receiver, which I'd had off to conserve power, and I set it to a general distress band. The green skin before me snorted, causing his helmet's visor to mist up momentarily.
0: Oom. Um, you Hulk boss.
1: I guess he meant shipmaster. I hoped he did. I guess I was at the time, with all hands but me lost. I was next in line. I figured I was meat, but if they were pirates, then they'd do me and take well. I guess they'd take my ship now. But he surprised me again. "Vell,
0: come," he said, "your hulk, totaled, no good." We got a salvage. You want in? Well,
1: I know how many beans is five, don't I? He didn't have to hit me over the head. I hoped he wouldn't. You speak Imperial? I hoped he wouldn't take my surprise as insult. He was smaller than I expected a green skin to be, but he was still at least two of me. And he could probably break me into smaller portions without sweating. Do Oryx sweat? I still haven't asked if they do or not.
0: Hear words better than speak. Goat clan ringside can speak better. He put out his chest and spread
1: his arms in a show of strength, and then put the palm of a large space gauntlet against his chest. Garn. Then he pointed at me. You? I don't know why I said what I said next. Maybe I was still frightened. Maybe I'd just taken leave of my senses and said the first thing that came to mind. My shipmaster would have been better at this than I was, but then my shipmaster might have shot first. But it was his name that came out of my mouth. Binpack. Shipmaster Binpack.
0: Fair beans, boss. This, he waved all around us, this yours. You here first, no? Never sail again, though. Is only goods for salvage. You sell? We can answer. He had a hard time with the next word. It wasn't one he was used
1: to saying, I guess. These dress call. Well, I was an army. I guess I'd just been promoted to businessman. Well, the cargo is still mine. So, the hull and the machines that still work? I think we can talk business. I had the thought that I'd gone mad. Embrace it, I thought. If I'm going to live this life, let's roll with it, I thought. Garn leaned in so our visors were almost touching. He was frowning and showing fangs that could probably open up the top of my head. And then, by his grace, the fellow grinned. It was more a toothy maw in some kind of rictus, but honestly, I feel as though he were grinning, and proud of the gesture, like it was one he had practiced for just such an occasion. And then he lets out this long, hearty laugh. After he'd got himself under control, he grabs
0: me by the shoulders and gives me a little shake. You cozy fellow, yeah? You, Trig Cove, boss rack gonna like. Fact, they come. We get you in Atmo. Maybe you sleeps out of suit, yeah? We get you sleeps, then you can talk business. He turned to his salvage crew. Stand down. Is not salvage. Is bin packs.
1: He gestured at me, then motioned me to follow him out over to their vessel. As we made our way out and over, he said something even more surprising. I didn't know Greenskins knew that word. Honest-like, I didn't know if mankind used that word all that much anymore either.
0: Sorry for the bulkhead. Figure you all deads in here, yeah? Deads. I
1: remember looking back toward the hull that went into the ship proper. Yeah. That was a few weeks ago. I got a place outside of a town called Arrock on ringside. And honest, it was just more of the same. Races. Races all not killing one another cause there ain't no armies here. Just people trying to get by cause there ain't no one else. Turns out the cargo I had was good enough to barter myself a place of my own near a river. By his grace, I have never seen a place like this. It's... I could go out right now, get a drink out of that river, and not need decontamination after like. And nighttime, Well, there's plates in a ring between the inside of the main ring and the dwarf star that gives us day and night cycles. Shade, I guess because you can still see the day cycles in 10 hour chunks in either direction on the ring. During a shade cycle, you can see what there are of the stars, and that's why I'm recording this, because wherever this is, it's out of bounds. To one side, there's no stars at all, just black stellar. But on the other side of the sky here, there's the whole galaxy. More to the point, I know it's the Milky Way galaxy. It's just like the maps i seen on the screens on the bridge of the Packs. We're way above the ecliptic, because I can see most of it at an angle, but we are far out. Normal-like, I'd expect to see the break that goes all the way across, but the Maledictum isn't there. Just what looks like the Maelstrom and the Eye of Terror. I figure we're galactic east of Terra, but... But how far out we are from the galaxy proper we are, I got no way to figure. But this far out? I looked at that big red eye in the middle of the spiral, kind of looking at us all out here and... Well, some of the locals call the dwarf star Yendapir. Yeah, end up here. (laughs) Cute. I mean, I can see the whole galaxy this far out. And if I can't see the maledictum, That means we're far enough out that the light from the event hasn't reached our position yet. The light we're looking at from the Milky Way is thousands of years old. But it's all the way over there. Light millennia away. And from here, it's like none of all that horror back there has even happened yet. It gives you perspective. And it's like a weight off my chest, you know? And off my head. And it's like I was afflicted with a pressure in my skull I didn't know about until it was gone. A weight I didn't know was there, like. The locals have treated me real decent. Every useful hand's a gift from the stars, you know. And no one much cares what kind of body it's attached to. You survive by your wits and what you know. And what one don't know, you can learn from someone else. They will straight up teach you how to raise real veg so you've got aught to bother with. But there's actually food that grows wild here and there's not enough of any of us to make a significant dent in it. There's fauna too and it can be dangerous as well if you don't watch yourself but it surely makes good eating. I don't know when the last time I had fresh meat was before I got here and given that supply's way more than demand if you got the gumption at a hunting party you ain't gonna go hungry. I haven't got much barterable skills beyond being a spacer. I was born into the lifelike, so I'll go up the elevator and go with the salvage teams when the warp drops something else on our doorstep. And that's odd too. It's never military. Always civilian ships. It's like whatever it is slinging us out this far only likes picking on shipping routes or summit. But there's always some good salvage out of that tower hoping to put together something we can use to observe the galaxy more close like. Something about lensing. I don't know. I haven't got the tech for that kind of thought. It's a nice thought, but if I'm being honest, and I guess I am, I don't think I want to see the maledictum again. I don't need to. I think I'm fine with that kind of light not reaching us for a few thousand more years yet. Way after my allotment of time anyway. And Heresy compounded. I try to imagine what the Inquisitors or the Marines might do to the locals if some Terran ship of the line showed up. And by his grace, I hope we're not found. My name is not Shipmaster Binpack, And when I'm done with this log, well, I'll ask that someone bury me with it. I figure I'll be recording in it the rest of my life. If you're hearing this... I guess you survived the trip out here too. Treat with the people you find here kindly. They will give you as fair a shake as you give them. That goes double if you're military. They can use all the help they can get, not some damn fool crusade nobody needs. I don't know what I ever expected from the galaxy, but it's not what I got. I don't know that I'll ever be equal to what I got, because I didn't think it existed anymore. I got peace and quiet. Second Supercargo, Tobin Rose, Auroc, Pax Unio. 119 Millennium 42. And long. <laughs> If you've ever looked at the gaming magazines or looked at other people's master-level miniature art at a gaming event and wondered, how in the world did they do that? Wonder no more. At Fallout Hobbies, what you'll find are high-end decals, stencils, and painting supplies to really make your minis and models stand out. Or if you want to customize them, have a look at our 3D printed bits to make your work really one of a kind. And if you don't see what you want, we do take requests. We can work with you to get your ideas realized and mobilized just as quickly. If you've got an idea that needs a solution now, come over to www.fallouthobbies.com and see what we can do for you. Fallout Hobbies, the satisfactions in the detailing. War Council is a hobby-centered podcast for miniature enthusiasts of role-playing games, games workshop-oriented wargaming, as well as model building and painting of all genres and types, and is a presentation of White Metal Games. You can find our video streams on Twitch and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our more premium video content, tutorials, and exclusives at whitemetalgames.com video membership. If we're on, you can even subscribe to our Discord server or Twitter and talk to us there. You can also visit our ongoing blog at whitemetalgames.com blog and our online store at whitemetalgames.com. You can also find our other stores on eBay, Etsy, and Shapeways for 3D-printed content. And if you actually want to see some examples of our artists' work, you can have a look at photos by following us on Instagram, Flickr, and Tumblr, all of which you can find by clicking the handy buttons at the top of our website. If you'd like to support this podcast, do have a look at our Podbean patronage page at warcouncil.podbean.com, as well as patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash games. You can even donate directly through PayPal. That's paypal.me slash games. If you'd like to get in touch with us with comments or suggestions, please do. You can email us directly at info at whitemetalgames.com. Thanks for listening. This is 1 minute and 41 second rant. So, spoiler culture. When I was a kid in 1982, some kid at my grade school got hold of the Return of the Jedi storybook at a Scholastic book fair. It was a truncated version of the movie for school kids, with full-color photos from the film, and he proceeded to tell everyone within earshot what was going to happen in the movie. And he did this before the movie came out, and yeah, they were real secretive about that movie shoot, calling it Blue Harvest and all that, but Scholastic, they were on point. And anyway, it was my first memorable, spoiled movie, and I've been pissed about it for more than 40 years. I get that people want to be cool by knowing about something first and wanting to show that they do. You're not cool. You're an ass. You're spoiling the surprise for everyone. No, you're not throwing caltrips in the road for big movie companies and ruining their hard work. No, you're not elite hacker or an uber-troll making people mad. You're not funny. People like you think it's the height of hilarity to fart in an elevator and press the closed doors button on your way out. And you're certainly not cool. You suck. And I've been pretty relentless with it this year with my social media. You're some kind of high-profile geek media blog, but you're not professional enough to keep spoilers out of your damn Facebook post headlines? You get unfollowed. You're a friend of mine, but you're sharing dumbass posts like that where I find a certain character's gonna be in Star Wars 9 when I didn't know that beforehand? Congratulations, friend. You're going straight into the 30-day snooze box. On FaceCrook, you can straight-up silence any posts from anyone you're friends with or any group you follow for a 30-day period. Enjoy social media, you spoiling bastard, and happy holidays to you, too. This was 1 minute and 41 second rant. And that will just about do it again for War Council this week. As things are continuing to change really fast from week to week, I don't have a preview of what's coming in the next podcast. However, with the breakneck pace with which the folks at Games Workshop are releasing new things and moving, it's pretty hard to imagine we won't have a lot to talk about. If you want to read of some of what I talk about once you're done listening, come over to www.whitemetalgames.com. Scroll down and click on All the Rest. There you can find my ongoing blog and read articles from a noob's point of view as I learn more and more about Warhammer 40k and Warhammer Fantasy, as well as the occasional game-related editorial of my own. Like I said before, if you like what you're hearing, do subscribe to the podcast and maybe throw a donation our way. The more support we have, the longer I can do this for all of you. I do want to wish you and yours the happiest of whatever holidays you observe, and I'm going to try and do that myself. So until the next episode, be safe, Roll crits.